Greetings, all ladies and metal gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales, Tales from Outer from our Space. Space. In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1276 to 1289. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1276. Story number one. Simper, fuck yeah. Written by Alt Phil. The war with Earth didn't go so great. No, uh, next question. The old Cloudtalk veteran grumbled his answer and looked around the class where another Cloudtalk student with a claw raised, and a question not so uh, distressing. The students, however, responded with non-answer by all of them raising their claws excitedly. So, um, you want to know more? The old warfighter said dejectedly as the class positively thrummed with excitement. Kids today... I always wanted to hear about the humans. He began to unfold the story, as he told it many times before. First contact with the humans, the students fell silent, wrapped and eager, hissing quietly at each other with the smallest sound for distraction. Why, all right, it was our planet, run through right to conquest. It wasn't even very important farming planet, with only a small temperate zone. The old honored veteran begins... Farming planet MST-3333 was a dust ball with a massive underground freshwater ocean. The water was pure, clean, and flowed up into the rice soil, ideal for the harsh food crops of the Sindai race who colonized the planet. The cloud attack found the soil on this planet was also ideal for the favorite tea-like beverage. So, naturally, the cloud dark empire blessed the Sindai colonists' souls and ordered the attack. It was vast, thorough and no undue suffering of those ordered to die was allowed. Their bodies were treated with respect and returned to the Sendai. What the Klaatak didn't know was that the Sendai recently found and befriended the humans. Mere days after scouring the planet and before the first of the equipment arrived to begin repurposing the fields, the human ship arrived. A single, massive ship. The humans United Earth Marine Corps. The ship deployed without warning. Hundreds of ships flying out of it and into the atmosphere. The old cloud attack and his battalion were guarding a key valley, behind a defensive shield wall that stops all weapons known to the galaxy. A single small ship landed far across the valley and deployed 30 to 40 human marines in armor. The cloud attack's weapons proved largely ineffective against the marines' armor. They simply rushed forward, two or three random and spaced out marines at a time, always advancing, always firing, an unstoppable, oncoming wave of deadly, accurate marines. By the time you'd get your rifle targeting one marine, you'd be exposed for far too long. The old cloud attack had watched no less than ten of his companions in arms have their heads explode from the human marines' deadly accurate kinetic projectile weapons. A full third of the human marines peeled off from formation, using jump jets to quickly move up into the side of the valley gaining elevation up the hill and assuming a position to the side of the fortified shield wall. Then, they rained down howl upon Cloatak's exposed flank. It was all that Cloatak could do but cow and hope not to get shot. Then the main body of the platoon of marines roared loudly, heard over the massive explosions from their weapons, screaming, Assault through! And then they charged. The old Klaatak's eyes, already dim and distant, seemed to lose all focus, and he went silent, just staring 
and nothing. Silence was like a heavy blanket covering the class. The students dared not make a sound, waiting to hear what happened next. His eyes snapped back into focus as he shook his head, seeming to be back in the present again. I had to do something. I watched our commander's head exposed. He's second in command, every leader in the platoon, then squad leaders. We were leaderless. The humans were going to be upon us in moments. The cloud talk looked at the students, almost pleadingly, trying to get them to understand. We were doomed. He sighed. I had heard of the concept amongst the new species. I guessed correctly that these humans were this new species. It was a wild, unthinkable concept. Surrender, he said, the word and concept foreign in his mouth. The students whispered and mumbled excitedly, Yes, surrender, as in deciding to stop fighting, to decide to win by losing. To this day, it feels wrong. But I saved all of those lives. I tore my own white uniform shirt off, tied it around my rifle, and told my best friend beside me my plan. He thought I was quite insane, of course, tried to stop me. But I jumped up above the fortified shield wall into the flying bullets, and I that white flag. I heard that this species, the humans, would not shoot someone who was surrendering. Again, the students chatted a bit louder this time getting a harsh glare from the veteran. They all fell back into silence. All at once, the shooting stopped. The humans halted their advances won. It was over. I'd won by losing. I had saved the rest of the battalion's lives. A single human marine stood up and calmly walked right up to me. He simply said that he would accept our full, unconditional surrender. It took a while, but we all came home safe and alive. Victorious losers. The old cloud talk took questions for a while, describing how they were treated out of respect, even friendliness, by the human marines. Their weapons were taken. They were each interviewed. The marines built quarters for them for the weeks their investigation took. The marines gave the planet back to the Sendai and helped them rebuild the farming colonies. He continued, Then one day the marines told us all that we were going home immediately put us on a ship and took us to a cloud attack outpost. The marines landed, left our weapons boxed up on the ground, ushered us out of their ship, and launched back into space without so much as a goodbye. He went on to answer questions, now patiently and less gruffly, about coming home to his mate and children, and now they spent the weeks together in near-constant embraces, thankful to have survived. He foundly brushed the Medal of Valor, the highest award for the bravest of heroes, given to him personally by the Emperor himself. We feared the humans after that. For years, our whole empire was terrified the humans would destroy us. They threatened to if we attacked their friends again, but we never did, so they never did. In fact, they established trade and wanted to become our friends. It wasn't until the Brickstick attacked one of our small farming planets that we became friends with the humans. The Brickstick killed our farmers, and so I once again did the brave thing. I went to the humans myself. I braved going into their space alone, certain that they would not kill me, because I've seen their eyes full of mercy. First hand, I went to them, and I asked them to help us. They sent the marines, they got us back our planet, of course, and they became our closest friends and allies ever since. 
But that's another story, not for today. The students chatted on excitedly as the old cloak tuck went to the door and opened it, saying, I have a surprise for you kids. This is Captain Johnson, United Earth Marine Corps. With that, a massive human walked into the classroom, balancing impossibly on two legs, towering as twice as high of the tallest claw attack, wearing a breathtakingly perfect uniform, eyes twinkling with merriment, and in a booming voice, he thundered out a friendly greeting with a smile and a wave. The kids' chattering exploded in excitement, and the teacher fainted. And that is why this recruit joined the United Earth Marine Corps drill instructor to be the first cloud attack marine, because there is no greater friend and no worse enemy. The young cloud attack student, now grown up to the first cloud attack marine recruit, stood proudly in front of his rack in the position of attention, with a massive human marine drill instructor towering over him. His DI stared him down for the longest time. Then the DI handed cloud attack recruit back his rifle and simply said, Carry on, recruit. End of story. Story number two. Galactic Evolution, written by Lane Meller. He was bored. So, so bored. Paperwork and more paperwork. It was just never-ending. Let's eye-stalk strained as he surveyed the latest requisition form. A new species had recently been discovered and had already requested its own place in the Senate, along with the required accommodations. That was marginally less boring than the last one, a request from the WEC contingent to have everyone wear shoes when above the water. Absolutely no one was going to approve to follow that. Waste of his time. One large limb coated in chitin flicked against the touch of screen before the secretary's speedy eyes. What's this? Was this new request a prank? Let kept reading the documents. Atmosphere requirements, breathe 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, and less than 5% mixture of neon, helium, and hydrogen with the pressure of more than 65 penny bars and less than 2 bars of pressure. Air must be purified, and anything over 21% in oxygen levels may lead to oxygen toxicity in species. Ah, exclusively air breathers, rare but manageable. Then have to be given space at the very top of the Senate to avoid the extra expense of pumping the human's preferred climate under the saltwater ocean. Nitrate requirements per cycle based on 24-hour day used by species human. 15 to 10 liters of filtered dihydrogen monoxide and 2,000 to 2,500 calories for a sedate human. 2,500 to 3,000 calories for an active human. Humans have a wide variations in shapes and sizes, so this is just the most common averages and may be subject to change due to outside factors. Blet was shocked. That was a massive amount of food, and they could not even drink anything but filtered, unsalinated water. How had they survived this long? A diagram of a human being showed the muscular, skeletal, and vascular systems of the average male human. Four limbs, no exoskeleton, no claws. He choked. They were mammals, sentient mammals. Let almost stabbed himself with his own claw at such a radical difference from every other alien on the Senate. How had humans avoided carcinization? With a nervous chitter, he picked up his comare. This was a bummy's pancreas. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1277. Story double one. A man in a suit enters a bar, written by Echoing Cascade. 
Orion was a proud owner of the bar Memento Mori. Her death was only dive situated in the seediest part of the seediest block of Stross Prime. Only three kinds of people went anywhere near it. Death Wilders looking for a taste of home, people who dealt with Death Wilders, and accidental Death Seekers. When he saw the small, suit-wearing human head to the bar, Orion assumed that he was the third kind that was about to call for a clean-up on aisle three, four, and five, which was a running joke from the previous human owner, when something unhappened. The entire bar froze. Orion was confused, to say the least. It was a bar where predators throughout the sector came for food and drink that was outlawed in polite society, due in no small part to the lethality to other species, where a spill of drink usually led to brawls and where dying was on par for the course. Jonas Dorn, one of the regulars, got up from his seat, left his prepared card on the table, and all but ran out the back door. This is a man that had more scar tissue than fresh skin on his face, had enough metal in his body to pass for a power loader. He'd seen the human eat a bottle of absinthe after downing enough beer to kill everyone else in the bar, then call out thirty or so scrotro insectoids that made fun of him and killed them with his bare hands in a back alley. John Smith, another regular, a smooth customer and a strong silent type lifted his hand and called Trissy, his favorite waitress, and asked for his bill. He paid, whispering something in her ear, and they both left together. They gave a wide berth to the small man and left through the front door. Moments later, Trissy sent Orion a message. Gotta go, family emergency. After John left, nearly everyone else liked it. Not that he blamed him. The man often showed up to buy drinks for everyone after a famous individual had died in a mysterious circumstances. All he ever asked in exchange for his generosity was that they all remembered that he'd been drinking and eating with them for many, many hours. If the unhospitable brute and the hired assassin left, it could only mean one thing. Orion looked at the little man. He had not moved after walking into the middle of the bar. That thing is, is a lawyer. Orion was too worried. For all that went on in his bar, he himself was squeaky clean. Orion, what can I offer you, stranger? The man looked at the barman and composed eyes and sat in front of him. Small man. A root beer. Orion served him his drink while polishing another with his dorsal arms. The man took the courteous sip and then a large one. Small man. Not bad. The man then paid for his drink. Orion, so um, what brings you to my establishment, business or pleasure? The small man lifted a right hand, which bit down the middle, revealing a metallic parts. A soft click, click, clank was heard, and a business card popped out of his wrist. His hand then reformed and caught the card midair. Orion was impressed, though it was the only one. After this little show, a few curious customers left decided it was time to go. Small man. Business, I am afraid. He then handed the card to the barkeep. Orion read the card. And then his camouflage reflex activated. Oh, gods, he's not a lawyer. The small man opened his briefcase and took out several folders. Small man, we found some discrepancies while looking at your file. Orion dropped the car to the ground. Intergalactic revenue service could be read on it. He was so much worse. End of story. Story number two.
Home cooking, written by Hull's kitchen sink. You don't meet many majors who cook, said the captain. You don't meet many mercenaries who blacksmith, I said, as I pricked over the mushrooms, carefully studying them. But I bet they're your favorites. Is it safe to be here? he said, frowning as he shifted his chainmail shirt, eyeing one of the nearby boulders. The slightest hint of face was still visible on it. It is a very weak rift. You'd have to spend months, years here, to even show the first signs of disanguinea. Or eat one of these. I held up a mushroom, a brown cap with lily white gills beneath it, a large round spot on it. You see this, don't you? Prepared with reduction of balsamic vinegar to temper the ossifying effects of terra sanguina, and a quick sear to drive out the parasites, and it can either make a hearty dish that gives your skin the strength of stone without the same stiffness, or a potent source of terra sanguina for someone of my skills. I sniffed it, and with a little spicing, it makes an excellent appetizer. He eyed my paunch. I see. I'm prepared, and, well... I waved a hand at the boulder. If you're lucky, you make an attractive piece of sculpture. And if you're unlucky, a contract to a parasite, then everyone you meet becomes very unlucky. Magic is nasty stuff when you don't know what you're doing. I lick my lips hungry. Any good with that bow? Extremely, said the captain, looking around. Something wrong? No, I'm just thinking a bit of venison would be perfect main course to go with this. There's a deer run through here. What the hell do they eat if it's so dangerous here? They are more accustomed to the elemental rifts. They change over time. We could too, if you don't mind growing the stone crust over your skin and gradually being driven mad by the whispers of parasites that you might contract. It strikes me that your tastes are a bit dangerous, mage, said the captain. He slipped off to the path and into the brush. He unhooked a large bow from his back and drew the bowstring out of a pouch at his waist. With a tremendous effort, he strung the bow, breathing heavily. I mean, I'm not even paying you. Some city majors are content to accept further food grown on gentle lands, to eat that which is safe and reliable. But power is rarely safe or reliable. The wild mage's life is for those that don't mind adventure. Besides, have you ever had smoked venison with grilled chanterellas in balsamic reduction? Now, um, aim for the eye. I'm a good shot, but it is I, said the captain, frowning as he studied the track, stilling himself. I sat beside him, my legs crossing, leaning back against the rock as I studied the herbs around us. I reached out and grabbed a few red peppers, smoked. They would make a spicy addition to the mushroops and provide a useful sauce for the ichnus sanguina. Make sure to hit a dead center. They gorge themselves in stone tears. Oh, uh, so they're tough, he asked. Routing and violent. It'll be an unpleasant fight if you don't get it in first shot. Oh, come on now, it's a deer, said the captain, as the ground shook slightly beneath us. How, um, uh, hard, um. He fell silent as the creature appeared out of the darkness. Only five feet tall at the shoulder, its skin was the color of marble. Its body immensely muscled despite the delicate hooves. Jagged crags rose from its scalp like a mountain range atop its head. Ten points. Black eyes slowly swiveled as it walked, each footstep sending a tremor through the land around us. The captain swallowed and knocked his bow, drawing. The trench smoker puffed merrily. We'd cut the wood from down by the swamp, and its blue-hued flesh, while difficult to light, 
was very smoky, and smelled faintly of salt. It cracked and hissed as new logs were occasionally added. I opened the chimney and grinned. The buck lay within, the marble-white flesh now a mottled sooty grey. You see, I said, as I began to slice strips and quartered and dressed carcass, the aquain sanguini in the woods serves a dual purpose, both lessening the expression of terra sanguini to make the meat tender enough that you won't break a tooth on it, and keeping it particularly moist. The cooking process eliminates parasites, and the particular flavors of smoke add some delicious caramelization to final process. Plenty of proteins and fats, all the things you need to keep you on your feet all day. As an added bonus, it adds hydration and stiffens your muscle fibers, making you stronger and giving you a greater endurance. And a variable cornucopia of free sanguinea. For one like myself, I licked my lips as I handed one of the plates over to the captain. The rest of the squad of mercenaries crowded around as I served them out one after another. Before we sat in a circle, I speared one of the mushrooms with my knife and bit in. It was rich, salty, tart, the flavor meaty thanks to the dripping juices of the venison. The texture smooth and yielding, almost buttery. The spice of the peppers brought tears to my eyes. I fanned myself, sweat prickling my brow as I enjoyed the rough heat. We're nearly out to the town of Parworth, and they'll be needing the supplies we're bringing. Apparently they've had a crop failure, said the captain. Oh, I said frowning. I hope they haven't yet reached famine conditions. I looked around us. This is one of the more unstable parts of the continent. If people begin to live off the land, well, they don't have the education to make sure the items are prepared safely, or to know which ones are safe to eat. I... That's why we've got you and the squad of armed mercenaries, said the captain, in case they've been, uh, living off the land. He nodded at me. Obviously, we can't compel you to help out, but... A wild mage is always at service, I said, nodding stiffly. Besides, I owe you. I took a bite out of the juicy, smoked venison, licking my lips. Strings of muscles parted easily, the long, smoking process breaking it down until you could have cut it with a spoon. The rich and gamey flavor made all the more satisfying by the hints of salt and sweet from the smoke. I felt my body surge with the rush of sanguine, skin barely crackling as the Terran and Aquian energies roiled inside, practically begging to be used now that they'd been cleansed. You did catch a deer for me, after all. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1278 a day in the life of a law enforcement agent. Written, I'm just a normal Reddit. Oh, no, not this crap again. Orwa grumbled to herself as she stormed through the halls of the Arillary Station. She wasn't thrilled about this call from dispatch about the disturbance in the commerce ward. But being free and the biggest around, she had to take it. Sure, she did work for her dreams, but since being assigned to the station... Her work became less uh, enjoyable. Half of the calls were from the same creatures, and half of that were giving her a headache. Excuse me, passing through, she warned before turning around the corner. Vacate the hallways, please. The Orwa was grateful the residents tolerated her and were friendly enough to scatter into bays and doorways, since there was no space for her to pass by due to her girth. She sighed at the soon-to-be intervention case, usually... Her titanic size intimidated most offenders into compliance, especially 
when they saw her behemoth features emerge from the hallways that she was blocking entirely. But this species especially was most often not impressed or simply amazed of her. Emerging from the hallway gate into the ward of commerce, Noora calmed dispatch for directions. Tenfold, this is dispatch sending you the location. The guide appeared on her visor, leading her through the bulk of the market to the nutrition market. As she entered one of the merchant alleys, she didn't need to guide anymore, as the immense crowd of the other end of the alleyway was pretty much the trademark of this kind of intervention call. As Noora arrived, the crowd sea parted in front of her and dissipated a little. As she saw the store owner, she also saw the confirmation of what she dreaded, the subject of the call. One of the worst members of its species, the massive Rarkarar, had encountered this one many times before. Noora despised its head fur where it was oily and yellow, a third of it on the one side to its neck. She didn't understand why it needed to have sunglasses in a space station. They didn't have any sun rays getting in. She hated how it acted like nobility without being one. It couldn't even afford the attire, let alone the designation. Truly, Noora loathed the thing, this human particular. The owner flew up to meet Noora, escaping the constant berating from the angry human. Welcome, officer. Thank you for coming so quickly. Sorry for the inconvenience. The behemoth could only answer by one syllable before being cut loudly by the insufferable human that stomped with high heels to Noora, infringing her personal space. She was sure that if she was not as big as she was, the unbearable being would be screaming in her face, It took you long enough. But irony. It was just five minutes since the call, though Noora was placid reflex. The bird tried to scam me. I want you to arrest him now. The accusation fell. The feathers of the Kayapawa flared up, a clear sign of surprise and indignation. Noora contracted a beak and muscles in exasperation. I can't arrest anybody without a clear and valid motive. You know that. The woman looked straight up and mammoth-like head. He tried to sell me something he didn't have. He tried to scam me. Noora was impressed that the harpy could stomp repetitively in place with high heels without falling over. Why, by the highland, would he do that? I need more details. The temper bomb huffed and puffed. Hey, I'm the victim here. The behemoth winced, her neck muscles at the increasing volume of this impossible human. I was shopping, minding my own business, when this motherfucker came and offered to sell me pepper. Of course, it was one of the things I needed, but when I was to take it, he wanted the money first. And of course, this jerk didn't even have it. Then he tried to assault me. Arrest him! Noora raised her shoulder plates in skepticism and interest, as you would cock an eyebrow. He tried to assault you. Oh, you deaf! That's what I said! What for? Because he wants my money! Oh my god, stop it with the stupid questions! The hulking behemoth face palm mentally. Right. Noora closed the first party statement record for the files. Procedures, what do you know? Then she stepped up to the Kaya power. Now, sir. I'll need your version of the event, and please remain as truthful as possible. The mammoth-sized beast asked, while starting the third investigation log of this case. 
and a side-eyed the excitable human at the mention of Truthful. The weird thing was how she was tapping her foot as if she was already out of patience despite just leaving her. Thank you, officer, said the diminutive avian sapient. As you know, we are but a simple shop of nutrients, and we are such since my ancestor's third degree, fourth line. Though a family-sized shop, we are established, stable, and reputed. The human scoffed. Incidentally, we only sell general goods and specific orders for regulars. The colored Kuaupo calmed himself and brushed his ruffled feathers to regain his dignity of pride. And earlier this very light cycle, this human came for the first time in the shop. Of course, everybody knows the new residents. The humans that arrived one month ago in the Arurili station, he affirmed, designating the fuming human. So, I go to introduce myself and my shop and offer resistance, since I know only a few Terran flora interest my usual customers. The answer I received surprised me. Not because she refused, but because the underlying tones my translator gave me indicated disgust and indignation. The human inched closer to better hear what was said. Not sure what for, but I left her be and flew back to my counter. Moments later, she came to me while I was processing the order of another client. She wedged herself before the two customers already waiting before her and interrupted my work. There was nobody there, interjected the invasive human. Norwa imitated a human sign and pushed back. Please don't interrupt the statement. You ready did yours. Step back where I asked you to wait. The female interloper grumbled and slowly skidded back. Please continue. Um, right. So she asked me something, but I was occupied, so I politely asked her to wait. The Kaya Power glanced at the human, but she repeated it two times, louder each time. I must commend my one employee of the day that cut short his mandatory thought-prey ritual to pass the goods customers. Well, I was stuck with it. Naora gripped her fists in acknowledgement. As soon as I finished my task, the human yelled over the counter on me about slowness and rudeness. We don't have more than two cashiers here, so slowness at times is expected. And Gaia Power are always formal towards strangers. I said so, but she didn't believe me, even as I was talking formally to her. The human piped up, don't listen to him, it's just a stupid bird. The woolly behemoth stiffened, her glutes in annoyance. Ma'am, please stay distanced and quiet. This interferes with the investigation. The impatient human crossed her arms with a face of displeasure. And? Sorry. She asked the question again. I'll not quote it for the plethora of insults and allusions to it. But she wanted a uh, pet... Uh, peppers? Uh, a Terran vegetable, yes. One with capsaicin in it. Noora annotated the chemical restrictions files. She also demanded, um, coffee. The female human was staring daggers at the Kaya Power. Of course, I didn't have it. We take special orders, but I don't have a dangerous toxic chemical dealing permit. Those are for species it doesn't affect, and I'm sure as the elder tree that I don't want to deal hazardous drugs. He's lying! 
A cursed human jumped between them, jabbing a finger on its beak. I know he fucking has it. Stop talking crap and fucking give it to me. The kind is king witch. Nora, exasperated, rolled her back muscles again. Would you please stop interrupting the statement? I've told you twice. I've told you thrice. This continues. I'll be forced to temporarily freeze you. Breathe in. Breathe out. Then, I said to the human, then she started yelling. Yells about outreach, yells about poor service. She demanded I give her what I don't have, like now. Lots of vulgarities in between. Then she threatened to sue me. We are only a small shop. We can't afford legal procedures. All right, I understand. Please confirm the authenticity of the statement with a vow and your designation, please. The walking giant finished the second party statement and pocketed the recorder in a vest. She took some witness statements, and then it was time for the hardest part. Norma sighed. Every time she saw this damned headache of a human, it was doing socially harmful things twice a week. She couldn't even enjoy her free time, since that was used to cure her cerebral pain. And here she was, walking towards the source of her ailment. But this time, she knew it would be worthwhile. What are you doing? You are not going to arrest him? Asked the human. The towering titan put a grip on her multi-being manacles. Oh, I don't have anything to arrest him on. However, based on the party statements and the witness testimonies, I will be obliged to arrest you. The maddening human was outraged. What? How dare you? You can't do this. I didn't do anything wrong. The oar's ribs twitched in guilty pleasure. Well, let me tell you under which charges you will be charged. Obstruction of law enforcement agent, falsification of facts, public threats, extortion attempts, harassment, and disturbing of peace. While she manacled the human, it resisted the arrest. You can't do this. I know my rights. Do you know who I am? I know your boss. You will be fired. Noah was thankful to the stars that his species was slightly stronger than the humans because the thing tried to wrestle it way out. Another line, another charge. Resisting arrest is a heavy one, and empty threats won't be of any help to you. This is discrimination. This is tyranny. Gesticulated the human. Noah gave a flex of satisfaction. Anything you can say can and will be held against you in a court of law. She called the transport. You have the right to an attorney. Open the transport. If you cannot afford an attorney... She put the human on the convict seat. One will be appointed for you. Then just before closing the door. And you have the right to remain silent. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1279 Sometimes the only way to get rid of cockroaches is to burn down the house. Written by Runner One. It was the greatest migration in the history of the universe. Trillions upon trillions of sentient beings across a hundred thousand light years were cramming themselves and everything they owned into every conceivable type of space vehicle and leaving the worlds of their birth behind. Some were heading for the Andromeda Galaxy. Some were heading for the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy. Still others were heading for the Draco Galaxies. And a few hardy souls were venturing deep into the unknown void between galaxies. 
trying to put as many light years as possible between themselves and the cause of the greatest calamity the universe had ever seen. The Milky Way was doomed. It would take many lifetimes, but soon, in cosmic terms, the Milky Way would be no more. Yet its place would be a black hole the size of which the universe had never seen since the Big Bang, and it was all the humans doing. The swarm had first appeared in the fringes of the Sagittarius arm of the Milky Way galaxy, an insectoid species that appeared to have some type of hive mind. They stripped entire solar systems to the mantle. Not a single living thing could survive their onslaught. The Intec were the first to encounter them, and with a wink of a cosmic eye, they were gone. The Vesic fell next, followed by the Garton Collective. In short order, the Velen Confederation, the Talon Hegemony, and the Schnook Collective disappeared. Soon old rivalries were forgotten as the races of the Milky Way came together as never before. Great fleets of starships were built, launched, and moved against the swarm, all to no avail. Where the citizens of the Milky Way could throw millions or billions of ships' personnel and resources towards fighting the swarm, the swarm appeared to be almost endless, numbering at some early estimates in the Septinians. As the denizens of the Milky Way threw more and more resources at the swarm, it only seemed to grow stronger. Billions died, and the swarm just kept coming and growing. The humans, one of the youngest species in the galaxy, referred to the swarm in various colloquial terms, as bugs, cockroaches, or locusts, a small swarming insect that could wipe out the whole ecosystem. Insect infestations had plagued their species since long before their industrial age, and had been the cause of many famines and disease outbreaks on their world through the ages. And even though, according to the humans themselves, the swarm behaved like locusts, the humans seemed to prefer calling them cockroaches because of their appearance, which seemed to be utterly disgusting to them. The swarm spread from world to world, consuming everything in sight, leaving nothing but barren rock where once life had flourished. The Injoria was the first to give up, a small peaceful arboreal species with little taste for war, They'd simply packed it all in, and decided that discretion is the better part of valor, began preparations to move their entire civilization out of harm's way. Perhaps the trees will be greener in the Andromeda strain, was their answer as to why they had decided to quit fighting. The Usatek were the next to begin preparations to evacuate the galaxy. In short order, others began to see the wisdom of the Injuria and the Usatek thinking, but the humans... On. When questioned, the humans pointed out that sooner or later the swarm would strip the Milky Way and move on to the next galaxy, perhaps Andromeda, and there the fight would start all over. But what else could be done? The swarm was unstoppable. Suddenly, the humans disappeared from the fight. Rumors spread like a wildfire that the humans had pulled back to their territory to begin preparations to follow the examples of the Injuria and his attack. The humans, although a relative newcomer to the galactic stage, had quickly grown almost mythic in their ability to wage war. When the humans had first appeared, the Skurlex, an old powerful race of warriors, viewed them with disdain. 
and seeing the humans as weak, had invaded them to expand their territorial control in the galaxy. This had been a horrible mistake. Everyone assumed that the humans would easily be overrun by the Skurlex, and in the early stages of the war, this appeared to be happening. Billions of humans died as the Skurlex rampaged through their colony worlds. It appeared inevitable that the human homeworld would soon fall. But then, without warning, the Skurlex homeworld disappeared from the galaxy. Disappeared? Yes. That's right, in the wink of an eye, the Skurlux homeworld, where over 12 billion souls winked out of existence, quickly followed by the main Skurlux shipbuilding planet. In a matter of days, nine Skurlux planets simply ceased to exist. The humans issued an ultimatum to the Skurlux, unconditional surrender, or they would be eradicated. It did not take the Skurlux long to figure out that their days were numbered. In a matter of weeks, the Skurlex went from the most feared and respected warriors in the galaxy to little more than servants of the humans. The humans never revealed their secret weapon to the rest of the galaxy, but rumors persist until this day that the humans had developed some sort of space-folding technology, and the Skurlex planets had simply been folded into their nearby suns. The prospect of whole planets full of people suddenly finding themselves in the core of a million degree stars horrified the galaxy. The only mitigation to this nightmare was that at least they died fast. Though they never revealed how it was done, the space folding technology once again appeared in the war with the swarm. Whole planets with billions or even trillions of invaders simply disappeared from existence presumably folded into nearby stars. But it wasn't enough. The swarm seemed almost endless. For every planet the humans folded out of existence, the swarm stripped another thousand, even to the humans. It quickly became clear that even with this nightmarish weapon, it was a losing battle. This is when the humans retreated, and it was assumed by the rest of the galaxy that they were preparing to evacuate their civilization. And they were. The humans were preparing to leave for parts unknown, but what the galaxy didn't know, what they could never have guessed, was that the humans had one last ace up their sleeve. It began as a rumor at first. Several stars and uninhabited systems had disappeared, and then the rumors became fact. Whole star systems were disappearing out of existence. Of course, because of their past use of space folding technology, the humans were suspect but they remained tight-lipped about the whole thing. Eventually, it became undeniable. Somehow, the humans were folding not only stars, but sometimes whole solar systems right out of existence. But to where? The stars and planets had to be going somewhere. The only question was, where? Eventually, the humans revealed their plan. The swarm would never stop. The Milky Way would not be enough. They would sweep across the Milky Way, stripping it to the rock and growing their numbers. Eventually, they would run out of resources here and move on. The math didn't lie. Eventually, the swarm would encompass the known universe, and there was no stopping them. Sooner or later, no matter where we run, the descendants of the Milky Way would fall victim to the swarm. The line must be drawn here, was a term the humans used they had found a way to stop the swarm. Once the humans revealed the plan, the galaxy was horrified. What nightmarish insanity possessed these humans? 
for it was clear that they were possessed by what no one could imagine, for only a madman could conceive of such a plan as the humans had concocted. They were planning to, and had in fact already begun, to destroy the whole galaxy. They had advanced their space-folding technology. They could now fold entire stars and star systems, but one or two at a time were not enough. No, they had dispatched thousands of robot ships throughout the galaxy, and at the moment of their announcement were folding thousands of supergiant stars to the exact same point in space, right in the heart of the swarm. When thousands of stars, many more massive whole solar systems were folded to a single point in space, the result is inevitable. The black hole will form. But not any black hole. It would be the largest black hole the universe has ever seen since before the Big Bang. This black hole would be so massive that nothing can escape. Nearby star systems would in fact be sucked in, growing the black hole. And with them, the swarm. But it won't stop there. The black hole will expand and consume everything in its path, growing larger and stronger with each bit of matter it swallows. The math doesn't lie. The black hole this humans had created will not stop until it gobbles up every ounce of matter in the Milky Way, taking stars, planets, other black holes, and eventually the whole galaxy with it. And in doing so, remove the swarm from existence. The swarm will be stopped, but everyone in the Milky Way will have to find a new home. In fact, that is what the humans have been preparing for since they disappeared from the fight. While some of their best minds had been working on space-folding technology, the rest had been preparing for the largest exodus ever known. The Milky Way would die, but the swarm would be stopped, and humanity would go on. Then asked why they had done this thing, what could have prompted them such insanely desperate actions, they answered with a single statement. Sometimes the only way to get rid of cockroaches is to burn down the house. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1280 Dishonorable Combat or Why Humans Fight Dirty Written by Alexander To Council of the Galactic Collective Community Regarding consideration for GCC retribution against the Terrans for dishonorable conduct in warfare. Esteemed Council, I recommend against this course of action and lack of sufficient vocabulary to express just how unwise of an idea I consider this to be. Not everyone has the same idea of what constitutes honorable combat, and that alone has caused more than a few of the bloodier wars in the galaxy. It has been said that the death wilders of the Orion Tetrad have the most especially the Terrans are notoriously dishonorable fighters, with some races comparing them to unprincipled barbarians or bullies and thugs. This is not the case. It is not that their sense of honor is lacking. It just runs along different lines than the galactic norm. One of the more frequent notions of honor that comes up in galactic warfare is the concept of a fair fight, where everybody's forces are more or less evenly matched, or at least equivalent. In the case of the Zendaya Overhive and the Funkruti, a part of that fair fight mentality is that everybody knows where everybody else is. 
Stealth is generally looked upon as a tactic employed by cowards and subsapient animals. Humans operate under the premise that wars are meant to be won, not to show some intangible concept like moral superiority. They will absolutely employ such tactics as stealth, along with any other means of gaining advantages, which can range from intercepting transmissions to sensor jamming, no matter how underhanded it may seem to the galaxy at large. Stealth is simply a matter of course for humans, and they carry the idea of remaining unseen to an extent of sniping from ranges beyond what their foes are capable of detecting. In those cases where a head-on engagement is unavoidable, they can be expected to show up with a large force as can be mustered, regardless of the forces fielded by their enemies. As the Marais found out firsthand, humans believe that if you go into war in the hopes of a fair fight, you're doing it wrong. As a particular case in point, as the above, the first of their wars with the Petogoi was on the surface of a largely insignificant planet of GJ674 system. The humans had laid claim to the world for mining purposes and had also already begun construction of a resupply depot and a small military installation for planetary defense purposes. The Petogoi had known the planet's existence for centuries, but never laid claim to it noting that it would be useless to most races for colonization without ever considering such matters as potential resources. They contested the claim of the GCC, but you upheld the Terran claim. This left military seizure of the Patogi's only means of taking the planet. They formally declared war against the Terrans and announced that they would meet their force at a designated time and location to begin. The humans responded with an artillery strike on another location at the designated time, followed up by an initiating an infantry charge that included assault rifles and a handful of laser weapons to mop up any survivors, with the infantry backed up by close air support that proved entirely unnecessary. The Ptogai condemned the action as dishonorable and pleaded their case to the GCC. The humans countered that they had broken no formal galactic protocols. The GCC determined that, distasteful though their tactics were, the Terrans were correct. This is not to say that the humans are incapable of fighting fair. Some conflicts are resolved in a sort of ritualized combat, and some of those have even grown into sports of some form or another. While cheating is not infrequent problem in some fashion, there are always penalties and sanctions that can be taken against those called for breaking the rules sometimes even within the event itself rather than in the aftermath. They do understand the concept of a fair fight and are even willing to enforce it. If lives are at stake, however, they are a few depths humans will not stoop to in order to win. Humans do have rules for warfare, however, alien though some of them are to sizable portion of the galaxy. The one which is easiest to run afoul of is, by far, that non-combatants are strictly off-limits. Accidents and collateral damage are considered to be acceptable, however grudgingly, but expected to be kept to the barest minimal possible. This flies in the face of the more than a few galactic traditions, not the least of which of whom included the now isolationist Rizik Vokuth, for whom standard operating procedure was simply glass the offending planet. One of the primary settlements of the Vasduri Accords, under which the Orion, Tetrad, and several of their closest allies operate, 
stipulates a ban on the use of weapons on a scale which will damage a significant portion of the inhabited planet. Failure to comply with this clause, even if its signatory is attacking a non-signatory, will result in the immediate expulsion of the Vasturi Accords unless done in retaliation to an attack of a similar scale. One of the main reasons for this is the possible effect of such an attack on civilians, and the Accords note that such force against purely military sites is permissible. In broader terms, however, the Accords forbid attacks that will cause extensive harm to civilians, and specifically targeting non-combatants is forbidden. During the ground wall of the Ishna, the Ishna made a habit of attacking medical personnel near the end of the conflict. The excessive response by the Terran forces resulted in a ceasefire wherein the Ishna were informed in no uncertain terms that such behavior would under no circumstances be tolerated. The Ishna, having noted their own distinct lack of human-inflicted non-combatant casualties, even in the wake of the intensified assaults, offered a formal apology and promised to avoid such targets when the ceasefire expired. The ceasefire has currently lasted for over 38 years. Though the two races are still technically at war as a formal peace treaty has yet to be ratified. Also worth mention is the fact that the Ishna have been a signatories of the Vasturi Accords for nearly 35 years. One of the biggest sticking points in the policy towards non-combatants, however, includes prisoners, whether during the war or following its conclusion. Many races have no compunctions against torturing prisoners during times of war for reasons from personal gratification to gathering information which, in fact, some races consider to be the only proper means of gaining intel on their enemies, as opposed to some of the spying techniques that our humans are known for. Post-war prisoners are often treated poorly. Execution is common, and often one of the more merciful fates awaiting prisoners. The winners of wars almost universally feel that they are entitled to treat their prisoners however they see fit. Prisoners taken by humans, however are generally treated reasonably well, or, at the very least, not mistreated. They cannot expect luxury, naturally, but the conditions in which they are kept are at least livable, and they can expect to be fed and kept healthy. Indeed, wounded prisoners are given proper medical treatment for their injuries whenever possible. Interrogations are common, but rarely violent. Not even prisoners who are guilty of particularly heinous acts, by human standards, that is, are often subjected to physical and psychological abuse by their gods, and they are by far more likely to be summarily executed and tortured. Post-war prisoners are almost non-existent, save for the occasional high-ranking military officer or political figure, and even those are often eventually released in exchange for some sort of diplomatic concessions. Another point of honor for the humans is not just to who they are allowed to kill in battle, but how they may do so. Any weapon specifically designed to inflict excessive pain, suffering, or indignity before death is certain to gain their ire, and they frown on deliberately using even more conventional weapons in such a fashion. Many races consider such attacks to be the means of showing that they have the more honor than those of the receiving end, who often act in dishonorable ways in the throes of death. Humans, however, believe that to bring dishonor of this manner to one's enemies is to bring dishonor to oneself. One of the few major changes to the Vistari Accords came at the behest of the Terrans after the Vistari Force fell victim to an exceptionally horrific bioweapon. These misplaced values, in your words, are not unique to humans, 
nor are there tactics. Many Death Worlders have similar values and have been criticized for using similar strategies, though few so effectively as the Terrans. Allow me to summarize the reasoning behind most common Death Worlder mentality, including the Terrans and warfare. Earth is a Death World. Most of the closest allies are Death Worlders as well. Their evolution emphasizes survival. They fight dirty because they had to to simply survive, and that imperative is genetically ingrained in them. Their very evolution demands that they value few things more highly than life. Their soldiers are fully aware that they may give their own lives so that those they fight for may keep theirs, and this helps to explain part of why they consider attacking non-combatants so unforgivable. Furthermore, on a world where death comes so easily, they insist upon life not spent in fearing for survival, but one of dignity. This is also the reason why they place great value on their inevitable death having, if not meaning, at least the same dignity. A human can accept death, particularly their own. The evolution of the species means that they understand its inescapability. But to borrow one of their idioms, they do not go gentle into that good night. They will do what they need to survive, and even more to ensure that those that they protect can live on in peace. But others in the GCC fight wars in ways meant to preserve their honor and with the intent to kill their enemies. Humans do not. Their goal is, as it has ever been, to survive. If that requires measures other races in the GCC would scorn, the Terrans will have no shame in making that your problem, not theirs. Respectfully for her from the Marie. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1281. Story number one. Kitten PDS, written by Slow AD 2584. The hive ship of the Kyristic unleashed a deadly attack swarm upon the human battlecruiser. This was an isolated encounter on the fringe of contested system. The hive ship hoped to get a surprise attack on the human ship. Due to the hive-like nature of the aliens, the attack was with many missile-like drones, thousands at once, each swerving and dodging on their way in as a chaotic swarm, specifically designed to overcome point defense systems. The drones-slash-missile craft approach rather slowly, spending most of their effort in dazzling chaotic dodgy movements. When they surrounded and attached to the target ship, the shaped charges would detonate. It was terribly effective swarm attack method. The human cruiser appeared doomed. The cruiser point defense lasers fired frantically as fast as it could, but only the very rarely scored a lucky hit. The missiles were flitting around almost too fast to see, and there were thousands of them. On board the cruiser in the combat information center, the weapons officer oversaw the encounter. He noted the panic in the crewman gunners, saw the warning flags on multiple screens, perceived all the metadata from all the computers. Each one of them also red flagging their overload and inability to track what amounted to a hairball approaching. He tapped his chin in tactical thought. Then he gave the order. Gentlemen, enable the floof. Some of the older crewmen's faces shifted from concern to excited joy but most of the newer kids looked down in confusions. Logins were entered, guarded switches were flipped, keylock authorizations were given. The lights and displays in the CIC flickered, 
as massive data dumps of all the sensors were boarded to another part of the ship. Deep in the core of the ship, heavily armored in an enclosure, a ball of fur was sleeping in a heated pillow, purring contently. The name Flufatail was embroidered in gold thread on the front of the bed pillow. Lights began to rise into a dim candlelight levels, and the artificial chirping of a bird sounded. The kitten awoke to the sound and looked around for the source, and it saw it, a red dot. It was a dodging and flitting dot on the display screen curving up from the floor in the hemispherical display. Outside the enclosure, computers were humming with the raw data from the sensors and were calculating how to display it inside. The kitten, almost skunk-like fluffy tail, swiped left and right in excitement, and the kitten's eyes dilated wide open. It bobbed its legs for the pounds. Outside the ship, a special laser turret was rising from the guarded socket. It had a pair of defensive lasers, and each was linked to an extremely rapid actuator servos. The turret itself was almost mounted on a track system, able to move forward, back, left, right, a bit along its section of the hull. The kitten pounced and slapped the red dot with its right paw. The right laser flicked and zapped a missile in the distance. The floof has engaged. If this works, you're in for a show, kids. Inside, on the display, more dots were presented, introduced slowly, fading into view. The kitten hopped and flipped around, clearly excited at all the targets, and started swatting. On the surface of the cloud of missiles, detonations were spreading, like a wave across the face of the cloud of missiles. The new turret was a blur of motion, its lasers sending out rapid but accurate shots. The hive mind was concerned. What sort of targeting system have they implemented? How could they have possibly tracked and hit so many... The hive signaled to the swarm to spread out in an entire hemisphere around the target ship. In the floof chamber, the red dot spread out all over the curved display. The kitten swished its tail again and began leaping in all directions of the chamber, all over the walls and ceiling as it joyfully swatted more. The turret became a blur along its section of the hull, moving almost too fast to see. Yet the lasers continued to accurately bap, flitting and dodging missiles away at near constant rate. Before long, there was only a single missile left. Inside the CIC, there were two screens showing the action. One showed the swarm of missiles being destroyed. The other showed the fluffy kitten happily leaping around in all directions. Most of the crew, watching the kitten, even in light of this imminent danger... A hive mind had enough. It took personal control of the final missile, using its vast distributed hive mind to be the unequaled intelligences and reflexes in the known galaxy. The ability to control thousands of individual drones now hyper-focused to control just one. In the chamber, there was one dot left. This one was tricky. The kitten leapt and swiped, but the dot kept evading. Outside the ship, the lasers were flying out all over in waves, and the missile definitely danced amid them as it swerved in. The kitten hummed in a teeny tiny growl and leapt at the dot, an arm swatting to each side of it, bracketing it. Left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right. The missile was straining, dodging left and right to evade the accelerating shots that were closing in on it. How could the defense turret possibly be so rapid and accurate? It didn't matter, though. 
The bracketing fire merely brought the missile straight into the turret itself. That suited the hive mind fine. It would happily destroy that troublesome defense turret. As the missile got close, continuing to barely evade the bracketing fire, it got within 100 meters of the human cruiser. Inside the roof chamber, the red dot was heard between the kitten's arms. Every time the jot moved left, the paw left cut it off, and the process accelerated to astonishing rapidity. And the dot was right under the kitten's chin when, between the two laser cannon arms, a hatch opened and a flechette charged claymore like the vice was revealed. As the kitten chomped down on the red dot, the missile was shredded by the blast it was corralled into meeting. Inside the chamber, the kitten stood ready to pounce, head darting to look around in all directions. There was nothing. They gave out a little meep of disappointment and returned to bed to curl up contentedly on the nice, warm pillow, eager for another go. The hive ship backed away, disengaging in more than a little confusion and alarm. Alert command! The feline linked optimization optical fire control interface is very effective against the Christic Swarmer's attack. Requisition additional reward goodies fleet wide. End of story. Story number two. Definitions written by Ozzy Endeavor. Ever since humanity joined the rest of the sapient species amongst the stars, we all became aware of just how much humans bond with those around them. It is common knowledge that they have, by far, the most domesticated species of any of us, and form social connections stupidly quickly. I wouldn't find out just how far an attachment like this goes until not too long ago. I was placed aboard a starship with many human crew members. We were told that we were on a mission to recover some old technology from before the humans left their home planet, Earth. I didn't know exactly why we were recovering it, but I speculated that there was some information or something in it. We traveled to a point in space only about one quarter of a light year from the Sol system and found it. It wasn't anything special. To be honest, I wondered how it had managed to stay together for however many years it had been drifting through space. After it was brought on board, all the humans seemed very excited and jolly. I mean, it's just a pile of outdated tech. Why is everyone so happy? I inquired this to one of my friends. It's called Voyager. It was the first man-made thing to reach interstellar space. And after all these years, I'll see Earth again. I was confused, to put it lightly. Apparently, the humans had given a space probe a name. Since it was a proper noun, it wasn't translated by the implant in my ear. You give your space probes names. We just call them by their date of launch. Yeah, it goes back generations. We named everything we launched into space. It helped make each one unique, and we got attached to them. What does this one's name mean? It means someone who goes on a very long and sometimes very dangerous journey. It fits, don't you think? I was surprised, but very curious. After we set course for Earth, I decided to dive into the logs of other probes and crafts the human had sent into space. To the next planet over, Mars, they sent rovers such as Curiosity, the intense desire to gain knowledge, perseverance, the world to continue in the face of difficulties, opportunity, a time or an event that allows for something else to occur, and many more beyond. Before I knew it, 
I was looking up definitions for these names when I first heard my crewmate explain the origins of Voyager. I thought the humanity just gave cute pet names to inanimate objects for some dumb reason not even worth understanding. Oh boy, was I wrong. Each name that was given means something greater than the limitations of the craft itself. Each name invoked a feeling of determination. They carried humanity through space and told stories of the craft's missions and achievements. You can probably understand the purpose of the craft New Horizons without needing any explanation or elaboration at all. It is magnificent. I think the attachment to these probes the humans have is starting to rub off on me. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1282. Story Double One. How Far One Goes. Written by Rednall 97. To defend an ally, a human, will fight to the death. I'm sure everyone in this room has heard the sentence before. How much of it should be taken as truth and how much as propaganda strongly depends on who you ask. If you had asked me a few years ago, I would have told you that humans are barely braver than any other warrior race, if at all. If you ask me today, however, well, everyone has a story involving a human. So, let me tell you mine. It goes back to the Trelakian War. Yes, the war everyone likes to pretend never happened. I was stationed until four together with 300 Narfri like myself and about the same number of human marines. We had a lot of close calls on that jungle covered dirt ball, and the humans saved our hides more about as often as we saved theirs. But on fateful day, we ran horns first into an ambush. Then in the resulting scramble, I was separated from my unit and frankly got quite a bit lost. So there I was, completely alone in the jungle, behind enemy lines, at least half a dozen clicks away from home base. And only a hoof full of shots left of my gun. And all just before nightfall. I was well and truly fact, and I knew it. So to keep me occupied, if nothing else, I picked a rough direction in which I thought home base was and started walking. Considering that our enemy was famous for their surprise attacks, I was obviously scared as hell. And every little sound made me jump in surprise. And let me tell you, a jungle can be surprisingly noisy. So, when I saw a figure approaching, I immediately snapped up my gun, disengaged the safety, and just a moment before pulling the trigger, realized that it was a human standing before me, not a Trilakian. After the shock settled somewhat, I took a good look at the human. A bit bigger than humans usually are, maybe 1.9 meters just as muscular as any other human marine, and while it was a bit hidden below a thick layer of camouflage paint, I could clearly see a deep scar on his right cheek. Then he ripped me out of my trance by, Whoa! Calm down there. Everything's fine. You can put the gun down now. What? Oh yeah, uh, s sorry, I answered, putting my gun down and re-engaging the safety. But you scared the hell out of me. Well, now that that's out of the way. How about we introduce ourselves? Mike Braun. My friends call me Green. Sure, uh, uh, I'm Rilke. My friends call me, uh, well, Rilke. You, you get any idea which direction home base is? Daddy did. 
so he started walking again in an entirely different direction than before. It went quite well for some time until we were attacked by about ten enemies. After I killed two of them with my last few rounds and the human threw me his sidearm so that I could keep fighting. The fight lasted only a few minutes after that and I could have sworn I saw Green get hit. When it was over, however, he was still fine. So we kept walking towards home base. When the sun finally started to rise, we were still about a click away and we got into another ambush. This time a bigger one than the last. We fought them for half an hour until there was only one of them left, and he was aiming at me. Before I could even lift my borrowed gun, the enemy shot and I should be dead. But I wasn't, because the human threw himself between us, caught the bullet, and fell to the ground. I wanted to help him, but I heard more enemies coming, and he told me to run. So I did. I ran the entire way to the camp, only stopping once I was through the gates. When I told them I was part of the previous day's patrol and managed to survive the night anyways, everyone there, human and nephri alike, cheered for me like they would a war hero. But as soon as I mentioned Green and that he gave his life for mine, the humans went quiet. Then one of them asked me to follow him and to show me something, so I followed him into one of the prefab buildings. In it, there was a body on the table. Its face was washed clean, but I'd recognize that scar anywhere. I'm not calling you a liar, but uh, Green died 12 hours ago and lies here since this day. I don't really know what happened that night, but I know one thing. To defend an ally, a human will fight to the death. And sometimes even that won't stop them. End of story. Story number two. Nightmare Dimension. Written by Algy Father Anthracite. The total of 1,000 inhabited dimensions, we think, said the man opposite me. I was still reading from the revelation of multiple dimensions. Of course, dimension was a misnomer. It was more akin to timelines or realities caused by quantum fluctuations, apparently. Dimension was just easier to understand. I looked back into the other man's face. It was still freaky to look at, like a mirror image, but slightly off. According to what I'd been told, he was me, just from another version of reality. The man continued speaking. When we discovered the method to pass through the quantum flux barriers and enter new dimensions, we didn't know what to expect. We were surprised to learn that there was a different version of Earth. Oh, there were differences, of course, but nothing terrible. We started exchanging data and figured out how to more easily move between dimensions. It's really convenient for resource gathering. Just pop over to a dimension that hasn't got any humans, and most of the resources are within a few kilometers of their location in our dimension. Any problems can be worked on by multiple teams made of the same experts, each trying different variables and sharing the results. Reducing the time between first assessing a program and finding a solution. Cancer was cured in decades, AIDS a few years. We even vaccinate against common cold now, and cold fusion power our cities. No one goes hungry anymore, and crime is at an all-time low. It's fair to say that this meeting will directly lead to a golden age in this dimension. It's weird, really. I came from a near-utopia. There's very little seismic activity, the weather is mild and the temperature is pretty consistent all year round. 
when we jumped to the next dimension, the climate was just a little worse, and the people got sick a little more often. But we were relatively close in both scientific and sociopolitical status, arts and entertainment. But the further we stray from home dimension, the worse things get. I'm a little shocked by this particular fact dropping in my lap. Um, how many dimensions have you been to? I asked my doppelganger. Several thousand at this point. Most of them haven't got native people in them, but we got to gather resources. Of the dimensions we visit with people, yours makes dimension 997. So you've done this a lot, then, uh, because I have to say, this is very strange for me. I'm still getting used to seeing a copy of myself in front of me, acting without my volition. He seems just a little off, too. His hair is part different. He's got just slightly darker eyes and lighter skin and a color of milk chocolate, as opposed to my own dark brown coloring. Wait, if things get a little worse each shift, we are 997. How bad are we compared to your home dimension? Um, I'll be honest with you, he replied, with a look I recognized as serious and a little upset. This place is a nightmare compared to my home. One thing about talking to alternate dimension me was I could read his body language like a large print book. He was suddenly uncomfortable, for the first time since we'd met. A nightmare, um, how? You guys have had a, a, a different history than us. A lot more conflict wars and the like. Uh, slavery was unheard of until we went to Dimension 778. Uh, this place is rampant with diseases that we've never encountered. And I had to get some serious inoculations to visit her. Uh, now we have for weeks, he replied. And you guys designed atomic weapons. Uh, that's, that's truly the worst difference. Uh, we decided not to go any more dimensions besides this one. Why stop here? Why not visit the last three? I asked, curious about what line it was that we didn't cross, what made us redeemable, but not the rest. Well, um, 999 actually built atomic weapons, and 999 actually tested them. They worked, by the way, quite, quite effective, uh, he said. What about uh, number 1000? I asked, my mouth a little dry. The decision to shelve our nuclear weapons had been made by Razorton Margin decades ago. Terrible pollution, population issues, conflict, disease, and those crazy bastards actually used atomic bombs in war. No way that we'll ever get to go to a place like that. We, uh, actually call that dimension hell. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1283 Story number one. One Big Misunderstanding, written by Hal's Kitchen Sink. I'm not quite sure I understand the problem. George Levercook adjusted himself and seated nervously, across from the human ambassador. Well, it's all rather awkward. Calisaxian blade fiend technology is certainly omnipresent in the Calisaxian blade fiend. The ambassador raised an eyebrow. What do they call themselves? That is what they call themselves. They say they're what you will about them. Deception is not one of their vices. At any rate... They spread out far and wide throughout our galaxy, driven, one might say, by the need to expand. Not for themselves so much, uh, their, their reproduction rate was low, even at the best times, but for, uh, well, they considered that their cause was peace. The entire race was de- very dedicated to the idea of peace, and all forms of non-Calaxaxian life were, um, uh, inherently unpeaceful. Ah, you paint a very clear picture. They were entirely in favor of livestock, though, so fond of it, 
one might say. And now you're coloring it in? <laughs> Lovely. They were also extremely technically adept to highly advanced technology, monopolization of many near-unique galactic resources, and very good with drone technology. There's a reason you don't find many AI amongst the galaxy as a whole. A more viruses simply tear their sanity to shreds. You know about the lost Valuxi, Valuxi, don't you? I am afraid not. Suffice it to say, we don't go there anymore. At any rate, their technology was very well guarded. Very vicious guard AI. When they learned that their reproduction rate was going to lead to the collapse of their empire in the near future, they disappeared, briefly, uh, knowing that after they were gone, the universe would be lost to conflict once more. So they, uh... How's it that you humans put it down? Threw a light into the furnace. Ah, Ambassador drummed his fingertips on the armrest. How very noble. Uh, they couldn't have just uh, booby-trapped it. A booby-trap only kills if you step in it. They booby-trapped them as well, mind you. The AI is extremely vicious. They programmed it to scan brainwave patterns, historical archives, everything that they can get their hands on to build a profile of a species. If they don't measure up, they are warned away. If they remain, they are destroyed. Galactic civilization allows these things to just sit in space. Those we can destroy, we soon regret destroying. Generally speaking, it has never been worth the effort. Mechanics Saxi and Blade Fiend standards were exacting. It has been assumed for the past 800,000 years that they were a kind of vile miracle, a once-in-a-universal-lifetime fluke. This specific combination of aggression, disgust, intelligence, and innovation would usually lead to a society self-destructing the moment it got its hands on the secret of the atom, let alone space-faring long enough to make a real go at finding one of the artifacts. As a galaxy, the assumption has long been that any civilization that would fit their standards would have revealed itself and been destroyed in a war in a very short order. At this, the tapping ceased. The human ambassador swallowed slowly. Look... They were a science vessel. They, they were attacked by pirates. Attackian pirates. They eat their foes alive. You're telling me that Attackians didn't fit the Colossaxian standards? Yes. They are often hyper-aggressive, and their dietary requirements can be unpleasant. But they also have a very strong pack-bonding instinct that allows them to form strong and lasting connections with other races. Part of why they tend to be so effective in pirate bands. And again, we are deeply sorry about the events. But that's not the point. I understand that they were the first humans to make contact with the Kalasaxian Blade Fiend facility. According to the captain's report, they were contacted by the galactic probes, warning them of an unspecific but lethal danger. They apparently decided that given the choice between certain and uncertain death, they'd take uncertain. They got aboard and had the ship repaired. It is not a weapon, you know. It is a simple repair facility. The bottom is a self-eating. The ship was repaired in short order. It's hardly an aggressive agent. It could revolutionize medicine and infrastructure across the galaxy. And create a fleet of nearly indestructible ships at a tenth of the time at a traditional shipbuilding facilities, given the proper material input. We do intend to share it, you know. We already made several trade deals to share the polymers. Yes. I'm given to understand that our scientists discovered that the polymer can be manufactured to fail spontaneously... In response to ultra-specific radiation wavelengths, the Kalisaxian blade fiends were very clever with their technology. The ambassador was looking quite unnerved now. You can't be serious. You don't really believe that humans are a threat to the galaxy. 
We're no angels, certainly. We've had our fair share of atrocities, but uh, every species has. We've read your history books, and the Ick are not the only sapien race on your homeworld until the very, very recently, he said, a bit accusingly, and Chancellor Vuk raised his feelers in a placating gesture. The genocide of the Hisht was indeed a grave sin on our part. As a race, we are tormented by that knowledge of what we have done, which is part of what made us presumably unsuitable for the gifts of the Kalasaxian blade fiends. It is also why we are having this meeting. The ambassador sat back in his chair, a bit dazed. Other species are thinking about doing something about us before we follow in their footsteps, yes. They don't believe that we'd be a threat to them. Right now, no, probably not. Given a year or so to seek out more facilities, you could become a threat. Given twenty or so years to expand and secure your holdings with a steady stream of Kalasaxian blade fiend Renics, you might very well be able to take on the galaxy and win. The Kalasaxian blade fiends died off because of a low rate of reproduction. Your species has no such issue. We could agree to avoid them, yes. Your government absolutely could. We would even believe that your head of state would be truthful about it. Unfortunately, apparently, there have been at least three expeditions and part of a major crime syndicate, a wavered human government, and the intelligence branch of your own government, to reactivate and retrieve further Kalasaxian blade fiend technology. Sons of bitches! shouted the ambassador, slamming his hand up. Idiots! Those bastards! Against direct fucking orders! He shook his head. His teeth gritted. They were intercepted, unfortunately. It illustrates the basic problem. Humanity is capable of many things. Your species white government is, all things considered, reasonable. Open to compromise and coexistence. That is why the larger population of species do not condone the genocide of your kind. Unfortunately, circumstances can change. You may not always be so opposed to the idea of destroying all life in the galaxy particularly when it becomes feasible. So we're on death row. We do the wrong thing, the galaxy unites against us, and they'll be itching for the chance. You are on probation. We would not condone the destruction of your species. To do so would be foul and disgusting. Our species is committed to not allow genocidal actions to be taken to curtail genocide. You have made it to this point. You are members of this community. The Chancellor shook his head slowly. Perhaps you will kill us, but I and my people have made a vow that our end would be better than being responsible for an end of another. That also means that we could not help you in a war. The most that we could do is offer refugees a place to stay. Before our worlds too were burnt. The Chancellor opened his spiracles and let a breath that he had been holding since the beginning of the conversation. So we must find a solution to this problem of distrust. This is going to scare a lot of people back home. Worse, it's going to make people edgy. Our species reacts very badly to threats. Yes, I know. But you also react badly to surprises. I thought of the two, this would be better. The Chancellor clacked his mandibles gently. So, the problem lies before us. How am I supposed to know? The galaxy wants us dead because of a bunch of aliens dead for nearly a million years screwed up their calculations. The Galaxaxian blade fiends were not dangerous simply because of their xenophobia. It was the intelligence that made them truly deadly. Their ability to solve problems. Confessedly, that problem was an existence of non-blade fiend life. 
but that potential seems to exist also within you. They wanted their successors to be capable of the same brilliance. I think, at least in that, humans were chosen for the right reason. The Chancellor clacked his mandibles again. I have faith in you. Oh! Well, that's fine, then. End of story. Story number two. Everyone needs a cookie. Written by underscore underscore dash underscore 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 dash 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 underscore. She was a terror the cosmos, a being of absolute power and unstoppable wrath. Individuals submitted to her whims or ceased to exist. Stellar empires crumbled for her. Their own ships of war turned into spears to rain down on those that they would protect. She was the embodiment of horror, and reveled in every moment of it. Fortunately for her, no one was intimidating while haphazardly devouring a choco taco. Not even a being with tar-black skin, oversized and protruding canines, and a motley collection of shimmering runes that constantly shifted and transformed as they wandered her body. The sundress she was wearing added its own quaint charm. The Port Authority didn't know how to respond. They didn't even know if they could respond. What's a customs agent going to do to a being of potentially limitless power? Stab a passport, that's what. Even if that passport was covered in weird, indecipherable glowing runes, she even had other stamps in it, which was the mind-boggling part. Her partner, they could detain him and grill him. So they did. They detained and questioned the weird being that she'd been traveling with for the last year, a homo sapien sapien, common name human, and a relative newcomer to the cosmic stage as a species. Quirky beings prone to anxiety and nervous tics the likes of which the cosmic community hadn't encountered before. This particular one was rather used to the situation by now, more resigned to it than anxious about being detained. The questions were always the same. Why was the Cosmic Terror herself and her latest minion visiting this confederation? When would they be leaving? The most important of all, and always saved until the end of the interviews, was always the most complicated. How? How had a predator being that, in effect, functioned as a final great filter for the cosmos, been convinced to eat ice cream and happily hum a song in a sundress? No one ever believed his answer or reasoning. That no being was inherently evil, and that sometimes the scariest and most hostile were also the most wounded. Some like to imagine he was fully bent on her will, and a tour of the cosmos was some new scheme to bring about everyone's destruction or subjugation. Video and audio of the incident that had led to this particular moment told its own story. A story of a terrorized way station where the beings present were being subjected to creative and cruel horrors of a fidgety and jumpy little being whose curiosity outgrew his terror, and whose simple, earnest question had brought everything to a halt. Why are you angry? That he received a genuine answer from her was shocking enough, much less her acceptance of a hug, a hug, and part of a cookie. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1284 Story number one. Mountain, written by T. Deegan. 
After the crushing defeat marking the end of the Second Human-Ilarian War, the United Ilarian planets disbanded humanity's military forces, leaving only intrasystem police and customs craft, as well as, after long protests by the Solarian temporary government, one warship to guard Voyager 1, continuing a 500-year-long tradition. The following decades saw humanity's integration into the Council of Species, helped along by massive economic aids, in large part from the UIP turning these old enemies into close economic allies. 150 years later, the Council of Species faces a threat unlike any before. And now, that last item on today's agenda, Proposal 54748, the reactivation of humanity's military forces brought forward by the United Alarian Planets. First, let's hear speaker of Euloid of the United Alarian Planets. Thank you, President. With the enemy closing in from the Galactic Center, we need any military forces possible to fight back. Leaving an economic power as huge as the Solarian Republic untapped is simply a bad strategy. Our human friends have shown their trustworthiness and honor over the last century. We believe it is time to remove the last traces of the conflict long over and let them fight on our side in this new conflict. Thank you, First Speaker. Now let us discuss. Yes, King Cascart of the 110th. Thank you, President. I don't see how granting the humans the right to create their own military will bring us any benefit so late in the war. The... It is hardly late yet. The war may well continue. The humans can't be trusted. 150 years isn't long enough time to... Please, return to order. Let King... For the next hours, the Council species descended into controlled chaos. At any given point, multiple voices could be heard trying to be louder than the next. Yet, never too many for a careful listener to gather all major points. After the discussion quietened down, the president took word again. Now that everyone could voice their thoughts, let us hear the ones affected the most. If you would, President Joseph Smith of the Solarian Republic. Thank you, President. First, let me thank the United Alarian planets for the trust they placed in us in the name of all Solarian citizens and all other humans scattered across Council space. It is hard to explain how proud and happy we are to be seen as friends and allies after all the atrocities in our shared past. For the future, all we wish for is to prosper with all other members of the Council species. Letting us help in a war must surely be remembered as a historic point marking a new era of cooperation by all of our descendants. Thank you, President. Some of our council members have expressed concerns that your loyalty towards the council once the war is over. The Solarian Republic is not the same as the United Earth in its history books. The Solarian Republic was part of the Council of the Species since its foundation and will stay to its end. Thank you. There are concerns about the strategic gains in the current war by creating additional drain on resources by creating a whole new military. Supplying existing forces takes, of course, priority of creating a new force. However, we have a large shipbuilding and refitting capabilities, which, while unable to build true warships, will be able to produce a fleet of armed transports to make sure our supplies will reach your forces on the front line. And let's not forget our sole warship mountain guarding Voyager 1, which ended up quite large since we only have one. Thank you, President. The Council will now commence the first vote.
One, almost, the Tatarian people were undisputed masters of holding grudges, unanimous vote later, near Argus 4. The railgun of the ship Moon Lancer, Royal Cuscart Navy, shook rhythmically every ten seconds, firing its twenty railguns, one after the other, into the nearly empty void. Moon Lancer was far behind the actual battlefield, along with the orbit of Argus 5, a gas giant not unlike Jupiter. Coordinating the frantic efforts to keep the enemy at bay until the evacuation of the inner planets would be finished. Officer Katrak, Long Range Sensor Station 2. Another eight drops, eight five light hours, is in plane 65 degrees, two battleship size, six cruiser, designates eight to five, heading towards Argus 4. Ha! Huh, lucky guy, came from behind him. But you got number thousand. His colleague, Officer Bracken, long-range sensor station one, shouted over the thumb signaling another Tritanium round leaving the ship. Didn't Sankrat get that thousands? Nah, misdirection. Just one battleship, not five transports. Hey, think we reached two thousand? I bet they have enough ships for that. Just hope. Wait. Kitrak reached over the microphone activator. Another drop, four light years in plane 350 degrees. Moon size, wait, what? Oh. Oh. A feck! Correction, one planet-sized designation Ace and six, heading towards Argus 4. The feck is planet-sized! Too big for a moon. There is no upper limit for a moon. Radius is over 6,000 kilometers. Feck, that large. Uh, I guess that works. Great. Now let... Oh, no. Counting dozens of new objects around Zeta-6. Battleship size, same trajectory. Bridge to LRS-2, confirmed planet-sized object heading towards Argus 4. Sounds from Kodrick's terminal. Confirming planet-sized object heading towards Argus 4. Object is accelerating over 100 battleship size on the same trajectory. Uh, Bridge doesn't believe it either. Are you sure? Ah, wait. Five drops. The flag bridge had descended into utter madness. A planet-sized object accelerating under its own power with any meaningful speed wasn't just unheard of. It was generally considered physically impossible. During the chaos, communications officer Perham was busy organizing the patrol screening the evacuation transports, but the computer forwarded a message to a terminal. This is Captain Arthur of the warship Mountain Solaria Navy. You've probably spotted us already. It's the, the moving planet. <laughs> we, we only have one warship with more firepower than most moon defense bases uh, and 200 battleship-sized fighters. Uh, how can we be assistance? A surprisingly short battle later, on a secure channel between Admiral Crixton and the RKN and Captain Arthur of SN. So, Dowie, where did you get that thing and a whole fleet to accompany it? Until two weeks ago, you had no navy at all. Ah, but we don't have a fleet. Uh, this is just our single warship guarding Voyager 1. For, for the time being, we simply entrusted local law enforcement with its keeping it safe. Pretty sure that's way past a battleship. Uh, but it is one. We, we have followed the galactic law by the letter. Humanity may guard the historic probe Voyager 1 with a single warship, which may deploy a maximum of 200 fighters. Mountain is a warship as defined by the Council. A warship is a starship primarily built for military actions, and a starship being an any fully artificial structure capable of independent maneuvering at sublight as well as in hyperspace. You want to tell me that that's not a planet that you've covered under a kilometer of steel, but an actual steel planet? Yes, 
Makes an initial construction a bit harder, but the payoff is worth it. Want to know the size of our primary reactor? Nope, I'm good. It's larger than your flagship, and we have over ten. Oh, thanks. Haven't I told you about our fighters yet? No need to. I'm getting the picture. Turns out, by council definition, you can turn everything into a fighter by removing the hyperspace drive and placing a hangar on a military installation. You done? You want to hear more? No. Then, yes. Great. We had built a second one in case we needed a replacement. Uh, it'll be here in a week. End of story. Story number two. Pursuit Predation, written by Thunderbird89. May the wrath of all the spirits in creation and the yarn descend upon this planet, muttered the alien infantryman as he lay in the shallow depression underneath some tree roots. His implanted biomonitor was droning incessantly in his brain. Alert! Heart rate critical. The alien has been on the run from the planet's natives for at least four cycles now. His last count after what started as a routine invasion went disastrously wrong. Alert! Car temperature critical. His fleet was crippled in orbit. His comrades dead. He couldn't understand how this happened. Alert! Dehydration. He's been trying to find a way to signal what was left of his fleet for extraction, or at least to hide until it was safe to signal them. But the natives noticed him, and were now after him. Alert! Biofuel levels critical. Malnutrition. His squad was picked off one by one. How? They were all enhanced. They should have been faster, stronger, hardier than the natives. Yet every time they thought they managed to shake them, they could rest, recharge, recover. They were always there. Alert, rest cycles missed, neural function impaired. It was unnerving. Like the natives could read the very ground that they were walking on, talk to the plants around them, to hear where they went. Alert, stress levels critical. He could run, he could climb, he could swim, but every time he stopped, thinking he's safe. The torment began again. Morning. Proximity alarm. Again. He tried to stand. Alert. Proximity alarm. He took a deep breath. At least the atmosphere was compatible with his biology. He tried to stand again. Alert. Proximity alert. Alert. Proximity alert. Alert. Proximity alert. His legs gave out from under him as he tried to move. He wrenched himself to his knees and started crawling. Morning, cardiac strain critical. Alert, proximity alert. Arm, then leg, arm, then leg, arm. He noticed the pain in his chest, but there was no wound. Alert, cardiac event, alert, proximity alert. The idiot raised his head and winced in pain, and then fell. Information, cessation of vital signs, information, shut down. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1285 Story number two Back Problems Written by Algy Father Anthracite What do you want? Hey, take it easy. I'm here to check up on you. Martin was pretty cranky sounding, so I used my most soothing tone. Back off, D. I know you're just here to poke around for your personal research project. I'm not in the mood today. Oh, oh. He tried to shoot me off, but suddenly tensed in pain. Are you okay? I asked, coming a little closer and trying to reach out with my lower support arms. Martin smacked them away, took a deep breath, and sat bolt upright. I'll be fine. Once you stop goofing around and let me rest. What happened? He sighed deeply. Perhaps he was getting used to my endless questions, or perhaps resign is the better way to put it. 
and threw him eye back. Probably overdid it yesterday with the support column for replacement. He rubbed his lower back with one hand. I'll be fine tomorrow. I just need a rest. Why would you dispose of your back? It's where your main nerve channel is. I again confused by human speech. I mean, I knocked it out of whack, out of alignment. I probably just strained a muscle yesterday. A day of rest and some mild anti-inflammatories and I'll be fine. But I thought your body had limiters to keep you from hurting yourself. How is it possible for you to hurt a muscle when you should not be able to? Humans were notorious for being ridiculously strong in relation to their size. But it was also known that they were incapable of exerting their full strength except in the most dire of circumstances. Geralt, I'm not a doctor. I'm an engineer. All I can tell you is that when I was swapping out support columns yesterday, I used one of the muscles in my back too much for too long or I turned funny. And now it hurts. Beads of sweat were starting to dot Martin's brow, and he was clenching his jaw as he spoke. If I had actually exerted full force with my muscles, I would have fractured a bone or torn a connective tissue. This is muscle tissue soreness, which is actually super common. Go check the data net for muscle strain. I'm going to lie down now. Talk to you later. Martin slowly stood up and shuffled slowly from the room. Geralt, please report to engineering. We have a situation. The automated announcement plays in my crew cabin. So I dress in my work harness and head to work. What is the problem? I ask once I arrive. There was a meteorite debris that made it past the shields. There's a damaged bulkhead that needs repair. I nodded my understanding. A gesture that I'd picked up from Martin. I grabbed the relevant printout and start loading up the tools onto a cart. After setting up a work zone perimeter and locking down the sector of the ship, I started laying out tools and supplies. There is a small hole about the size of a sheng nut but which has been temporarily patched. I need to set up a small containment field and then remove the damaged area with a plasma torch and replace it with a bit of plasteel from our supplies. The temporary patches would only hold for a few hours before the polymer that they were made from would start to lose strength. I had set up a fuel generator and was finalizing my plasma torch setup when Martin arrived. He had brought a collapsible chair, which he promptly set up and sat in. Ranking maintenance engineer reporting for repair, as per regulations. You should have called me, D. He looked even more annoyed than earlier. I thought you were resting. I replied as I completed the plasma torch setup. I still need to do my job. Besides, can't have you getting dinged on my watch. Looks bad for both of us. Make sure you set the gas regulator properly, he said, eyes roving over all of the other preparations I had done. Night, I said, and finished my setup. He sat in his chair and watched silently as I sliced away the damaged plate and started welding in the patch. I was halfway through when the alarm started. Debris field. Race for multiple impacts. Repeat. Race for multiple impacts. I got off the torch, and when I turned around, Martin was already moving down the hall. Keep seeding the patch. I'll evacuate the section, just in case. He called over his shoulder. I could hear him chasing other crewmen out of the section. I focused on the patch. Only a few more moments and it would be complete. I wake up in a bright room. I cannot move. As I struggle, I see someone move into view. They're locked. Be calm. It is I, Dr. Mpa. You are okay. I have restraining field on you to immobilize the damaged walking limb. What happened? I asked as the last thing I remember rushing to finish the patch. You were hurt when the ship took a hit, knocked you against the hull, and a gas cylinder fell and caught your leg. 
Martin carried you in. Don't worry, you finished the patch before you got hurt. Good job, Dr. Mba said, patting my lower support arm. There's Martin, okay? I'll be fine. Just need a few days. I heard a gruff voice. I rolled my head over to see Martin hanging upside down from a contraption by his ankles, his arms dangling above his head. You were hurt? I asked. You are kind of heavy, and lifting this gas cylinder kind of sucked too, now that I'm thinking about it. And now my back is actually damaged. Don't worry, Doc's got me on some good painkillers. I could do without the gravity boots, though. He tore a latissimus dorsi muscle while lifting you. I've given him a shot of nanobots, just like you. You should be fine in a couple days, Dr. Imba says as he checks the instruments. I thought you were hurt before. What was I supposed to do? Leave you there bleeding? You're on your own for the next few days, so try not to get knocked out again. Besides, a hurt back and damaged muscles are two different things. End of story. Story number one. The Winter March, written by Mercury the Dina. Space warfare is about offense. It simply is a natural progression of combat. As a species advances, their offensive capabilities evolve faster and faster, to the point armor just can't keep up pace. You can change a couple things, of course. The Pumankni, for example, use gigantic carriers and battleships to break enemy lines. The Mulnave prefer to use hundreds of smaller carriers surrounded by hundreds of thousands of attackers to overwhelm with sheer numbers. Some have super-efficient hyperdrives to invade system after system before the defenders can prepare themselves. Others choose to invest on faster, normal engines so that they can do hit-and-run attacks better. But it is always about the offensive. On ground battles, that is also true. Orbital strikes make any slow-moving defense a sitting duck, just waiting to be blown from orbit. And yet again, everyone has their own little doctrine. Some stuff their troops with weapons, others like to make them fast and flexible. But the contrast is the same. From the highly specialized soldiers of the Electi to the gigantic bodies of the Vidium V, it is all about offensive. Until we met the humans, they were mildly impressive species when we found them. Just 400 years after first discovering FTL, they had already colonized over 200 systems. They had potential. And people love to exploit potential. Battle plans were set, meetings were made, treaties were signed. Everyone wanted a piece of humanity. The reason varied, of course. Some wanted them as slaves, others as citizens. Many just wanted their territory. Not one even thought about them winning. They only had railguns and no lasers. Sure, the railguns were much better than other kinetic weapons, but lasers were better for offense. Their armor was truly impressive. But it was heavy, making their mechanized units easy targets. They had even worse offensive capabilities, and war is about offense. All at once, everyone declared war on humanity. Human worlds fell again and again under the might of superior lasers and orbital bombardments. Sure, their sabotage and guerrilla tactics made things difficult, but none could stand against this offensive. Every world conquered simply fueled the offensive on. It was easy as a summer's walk. Then all at once, everything stopped. No more supplies came from the conquered worlds, no more communications either. So the fleets went back to check what was happening. Trash. Every planet they checked had trash floating around it, 
tons upon tons of trash in orbit forming a shield of garbage. Upon closer inspection, they found out why. The humans had built hundreds of gigantic railguns into every planet, hit them underground, and now were using them to throw trash into orbit. The admirals of every nation decided that the sensible thing to do was to shoot the railguns down. Much to their horror, however, the trash shield prevented any orbital bombardments from getting close enough to shoot. Nothing was getting in or out of those planets. The soldiers down on the worlds would now have to fight an enemy with superior armor, superior organization, better knowledge of the terrain, and greater experience in attrition fighting. All without help of orbital bombardment or the ability to retreat out of the planets. This wasn't the worst part, however. Most of the supplies needed by the fleets were being supplied by the conquered worlds, which meant now their lifeline had suddenly been cut while deep in enemy territory. Some tried to push on, but the humans had concentrated all of their forces and were now shredding the enemy forces. Some tried to retreat, but the humans had recorded how their fleets moved, so the moment they appeared in the system, they would be immediately shot by thousands of previously hidden railguns. Advance and face a bloodthirsty enemy by yourself. Retreat and watch as your forces crumble before the storm of human shots. Hold your position and let your soldiers starve. Suddenly, every admiral in every nation had realized something truly terrible. Their summer walk had just become a winter march. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1286 Story number one, Linebreaker, written by Mechakid. Admiral Katari stood on the bridge of his flagship Arundi's Pride, watching the progress of the campaign. The forge was a cluster of black holes that dominated the sector, preventing FTL navigation. The isolating of the Omegon system, a natural fortress in space. The only two sublight passages in or out of the system, the Dominus Cut and the Gate of Ingroth, were both hulled by Krovac forces. Inside of the forge were massive shipyard complexes, marshalling points for invasion fleets. Alliance forces couldn't push past the Omegon system, nor could they ignore it. It was time to bring in the Linebreaker. Two days later, the human ship Vulcan's Hammer arrived as requested. The Qatari studied the designs, both amused and disgusted at the same time. Humans, it seemed, took no sense in beauty in their ships. They were nothing like the fast and stunning lines of his own Arundi flagship, nor did it have the graceful lines of the Seti Cutter. The humans had built a blunt ship with hard angles, at ten kilometers long and two kilometers wide. Over half the ship's tonnage was devoted to a strange concept the humans called armor. It was hard to believe that a space-faring race would use such primitive methods of protecting their ships when battle screens were available. But time and time again, the human ships had shown the ability to take abuse and shrug off damage well after the battle screens had failed. Another quarter of the ship was an offensive system. While most of the galaxy prefers plasma-based weaponry, the humans had again settled of brute force, mounting slug throwers in a bewildering array of sizes. Even the point defenses were projectile-based. Captain, I'm sure you're aware of the defense of the Omegon system. Yes, Admiral. What is your plan then, Captain? Sir, at the go signal, UNS Vulcan's hammer will approach the Dominus Cut. 
Upon entry into the cut, we will begin bombardment of fixed installations. Krovac mobile units will be dealt with by direct fire gauze cannons. We will continue to assault until the enemy forces are eliminated or surrender. You are aware that the combined fleet will not be able to assist this attack, correct? No Rundi or Seti ship can stand the firepower of those guns. Yes, sir. Don't worry. The hammer is a tough old witch. She can take it. Then I leave the details to you, Captain Ross. You humans are supposed to be the experts in this kind of thing. Understood, Admiral. Three hours later. Admiral? Yeah, what is it, Captain? Sir, a signal from Vulcan's hammer. We're opening the door. Very well. I shall be there in a moment. The Vulcan's hammer slowly began to move forward, then gathered speed under full acceleration. It would take 20 minutes for the ship to enter its optimal firing range, but in less half that time, the defenses of the cut were already engaging with where the longest-range batteries. The forward shields of the hammer glowed a dull red under the plasma fire that would burn out smaller ships. Fifteen minutes after the hammer began moving, the second layer of the cut's fixed defense began taking her under fire. The hammer was now moving at a considerable fraction of the speed of light, bunging towards the waiting defenders, and her shields now glowed orange, with some spots flaring into bright yellow. Admiral Katari had to admit that he was impressed, but knew the human ship must be spending tremendous amounts of energy to keep the shields in place. Finally, the UNS Vulcan's hammer began to return fire. Four metal slugs, each massing roughly 100 tons, were accelerated to just below half the speed of light and streaked out. Every minute after that, four more slugs were launched. Even with their stupendous speed, it still took three additional minutes for them to cross the distance to the first of the defensive stations. When they impacted, however, a force equal to just under 500 gigatons of explosives shattered not just the stations, but the asteroids that they were placed on. It was at this point that the Admiral realized why the humans insisted on kinetic weapons. There was simply no defense against such massive forces other than by hitting them head-on with an equally large projectile, traveling equally as fast. But the battle was just getting started. Vulcan's hammer had shattered four stations, but another 96 remained, and now fully half of them were within engagement range. The shields, mighty as they were, flared white, then blue as they desperately fought off massive energies being poured into them. Every few seconds, a jet of plasma would break through, scorching the hull of the human ship, leaving deep furrows in the harbor plates. Four more stations ceased to exist, then another four. It seemed as though Vulcan's hammer was plunging into its destruction, but every minute traded armor and drive mass for more of the defenders, the Krovac defense fleet was engaging now as well, though their own weapons seemed laughable compared to the titanic energies being released. Their resistance only brought them the same death as the battle stations, as dozens of smaller Gauls cannons hurled slugs back across space. In another twenty minutes, it was all over. None of the defensive platforms remained, and the hull of the UNS Vulcan's hammer glowed, globs of molten metal sparking off of her as she came to a halt. As insane as it sounds, literally half the human ship was gone, huge sections having been reduced to slag, or even evaporated. Suddenly, there was a series of detonations down the entire length of the ship, and the Irandi Admiral gasped. Had the human ship given its last? But to his amazement, he watched as the core of the Vulcan's hammer pulled away from the wreckage. An old human battleship, 
hidden under all the armor that had just been released to float away. Admiral, a message from Captain Ross. Put it on screen. Captain? I'll send you, Admiral. You can bring the fleet through. Thank you, Captain Ross. Are you in any need of assistance? Your ship seems to have lost some weight. We're fine, Admiral. The human chuckled and smiled. Call us again when you're ready to take the gate of Groth. In the meantime, if you don't mind, sir, I think the old girl could use a new dress. End of story. Story number two. You've been here before. Written by Rednall 97. Shortly after the official first contact discussions were over. Humans. So, it was mentioned that you visited before. Any more details? Adia. Um, yes, uh, it was a century or so ago, Ter- Terran date 1942. The Trilok stumbled across your planet. Human. Oh, I can see why you wouldn't contact us back then. Adia. The galaxy at large only learned about you recently after the corresponding Turlockian files were declassified. But the Turlock never had peaceful contact in mind. They wanted to attack us. Yes, but they didn't because you scared the shit out of them. Wait, what? How could they not be scared of you? You had between three and four million deaths in that year alone. There had been interplanetary wars that was half that body count, not to mention the ferocity with which you fought. Just look at Stalingrad. One of the main reasons given for leaving you alone. The fact that the Germans didn't surrender a week in was unfathomable to the Trilok. One of their war masters is quoted saying, If they don't surrender when they are surrounded by two million men while simultaneously starving and freezing to death, why would they surrender when their planet is surrounded? But they can sit in their warm houses. Okay, I can see that. But still, we'd be pretty much defenseless, right? Against orbital bombardment, yes. But it would have ruined the planet as well. Against aircraft, you have scored only a few kills, but you can't take a planet with planes alone. On the ground, it would have been a slaughter for both sides. Shields are effective, but so are your slug throwers. Not to mention what would have happened if you reverse engineered the tech, which wouldn't have taken you long. Mm, I guess that makes sense. Uh, I do have one last question, though. If they were so terrified of us, why did you contact us now? There must have been quite an opposition to that decision... Well, like I said, we only learned of the classified files and therefore your existence a few months ago. And as to why we decided to contact you instead of ignoring you, that's quite simple. There were some that didn't want humanity as an ally, but there was no one who wanted to risk you becoming our enemy. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1287 Story Double One the Missing Piece, written by Algy Father Anthracite. Aether, the power behind nearly every race in the galaxy. It was used to travel, to heal, to build, and tear down. Every race had a name for it. Aether, Grem, Rifiat, Key, Shah. Whatever you called it, it was everywhere. A source of power, a catalyst for exerting your will upon the universe. It was so infused in our culture of our ideas of how the world worked that we never even questioned it. It was a shock to learn that there was a whole species that wasn't able to harness Aether. They couldn't feel it, see it, sense it in any way. They suspected it might exist. Dark matter, they called it. The most abundant resource in the universe. They were like men at the bottom of an ocean who wouldn't drown because they never even knew water existed. 
Humans were the most technologically advanced species in the galaxy, because no other race needed technology. Everyone else just used ether manipulation. Want to travel to the moon? Easy. Just make a bubble of air in the aether shell and push it to the moon. But humans, they had to fight for it. They had to invent machines and use ridiculous amounts of resources to build giant rockets that exploded them into space. And the way they finally broke the speed of light barrier. Who even thinks of harnessing a black hole? Medicine was upsetting to learn about. They couldn't use aether to heal themselves or drive out sickness. Resetting bones, halo harnesses, costs for weeks and months. The elders started to cry openly when they learned about chemotherapy. Poison as a healing agent. It was one of the most insane things that we'd ever heard of. But without Aether, we would never have been able to heal anyone at all. I remember the first time I was on Earth. The place was so strange. The air hurt my lungs, and the sky was so cloudy and dark. And they had these hard-packed paths that went everywhere. Roads, they were called, with great big metal and plastic abominations that they drove along in. Those were terrifying. They ran along the roads with just a few feet of space between them, at such dizzying speeds. Flying was so much better. You could just find a nice open section of sky and zoom off to where you needed to go. But you can't do that without Aether. And it wasn't like there wasn't any around. It was thick on their world. They had never used any, so they had a thicker Aether than just about any other place I'd been to. I remembered thinking, how could they not notice? But time and time again, they were tested, and not only were they oblivious to it, they were barely affected by it. If you tried to fly with a human in tandem, they would simply not get lifted up. The Aether seemed to pass right over them, right through them. If you made a chair float of its Aether, a human could sit on it and be carried by the chair. Otherwise, they would be unable to interact with Aether. We were never able to figure out how it happened that a whole place should develop and never even be able to interact with Aether. What was even more strange was that nothing from Earth, animal, vegetable, or mineral could interact with Aether. A whole world cut off from the most useful tool in all the universe. It was like finding out that there were people who developed a whole civilization without the ability to lift more than a single grain of sand. The tenacity, the indomitable will to learn, accomplish, achieve greatness. What was even more upsetting was that they weren't mad about it. They found out that that was just a mysterious force that flowed through all of existence and that they alone were without the ability to use it. And do you know what they said? Can't miss what you never had. Oh, they were fascinated, mind you. Their scientists studied Aether, picked apart the mechanisms of how it worked. They conducted endless and ever more intricate experiments. They'd spent hundreds of years gathering information on the use of Aether, despite not being able to use or even see Aether. They quantified it. They knew how much Aether was used to lift one kilogram weight one meter in the air. They called it an SAU, Standard Aether Unit. Flying 100 yards was roughly 125 SAU, plus mass lift. Some people were better at using Aether than others, 
where we all fell on a balka, as the humans called it. The research never ended. They discovered which things were easier to affect and which things required more effort. They designed new ships for interstellar travel and hired other races to power them. They spent millennia just improving everyone's understanding of Aether and developing new techniques and technologies to better and more efficiently harness Aether. The major breakthrough, the Holy Grail they called it, was to design a machine to use Aether directly. It started small, a tiny, blinking light, barely visible. But it bridged the gap. As humans spread through the galaxy, so too did their technology. Technological advances built upon the shoulders of the previous advances, combat that ran on Aether, starliners that were designed entirely by humans, even personal conveyances were commonplace, though almost all of the other races still chose Aether-powered flight for personal transport. With a combination of human medicine and Aether, most serious illness was eradicated, and recovery times for injuries were at an all-time low. I remember asking a human friend about it once, how he felt about the strange dichotomy of humans and science versus the galaxy and Aether. I'll never forget what he said. We spent thousands of years trying to piece together a puzzle, but we were stuck because we couldn't find all the pieces. Then we met you guys, and you were walking around with all those pieces that we were missing, but no idea what the puzzle was. I'm just glad that we were able to complete the puzzle. End of story. Story number two. Private Sale, written by Dalgy Father Anthracite. Yar, Mr. Smith. For today, yes, that is easier than my real name for you. You were recommended by Wendelia Zoldre. How do you know her? Said the tall, thin man. He was impeccably dressed and stood straight with his shoulders back. He looked down his nose at the somewhat threadbare radian in front of him. All it wore was a harness covered in small pouches, a thick fur that covered its body negated the need for traditional clothing. We were roommates at university. That's also where I first saw one of these. I've been fascinated ever since. The creature's eyes passed over the small baskets, each of which held a precious cargo. One in particular seemed to catch its attention. I've been saving for so long for one that when I saw Wens, I asked her for the introduction. Before we begin, I want to go over some ground rules. Number one, you must call me if you decide you don't want to keep it. They take considerable time and effort to care for and educate. If you find yourself lacking, I will retrieve it. No questions asked. Number two, remember, and I cannot stress this enough, these are juveniles, toddlers, really. They have no concept of proper behavior, language, or discipline. You must train them. I'll be checking on their health and well-being. Number three. Any abuse or injury will be grounds for immediate removal. The man's tone was stern. He obviously cared for what happened to his merchandise. The furry alien nodded furiously. It had no intention of angering the man. It had gone through a special training course and gotten permits and licenses. It wasn't about to mess up a lifelong dream. It had taken a massive sum of money months of paperwork, three failed attempts from shady brokers, and finally, a personal recommendation. But at last, the time was here. It was well known that humans had intense feelings about these things, also when juveniles were involved. They were fiercely protective and carefully screened potential buyers. 
The alien was sure the extensive background check had been performed before it even received a callback. Well then, the man said, much more jovially. As you requested, these are all female. Please feel free to inspect the merchandise. He waved to two large men standing behind the baskets, in suspiciously bulging suit coats. They leaned down and tipped over the baskets, and a half a dozen puppies rolled onto the floor. The alien trilled excitedly and dropped to his belly. The puppies, seeing the furry creature flop to the ground, ran over to investigate. The sounds of excited aliens and rambunctious puppies filled the air. After almost an hour, the alien sat next to five sleeping pups, with a sixth held tenderly. I assume you've made your choice then, the man said. The alien simply nodded as it continued to stroke the pup. The man waved, and his assistants gathered the other dogs and put them back into their baskets. An excellent choice. Do you have a name in mind? I can register right now. Petunia. I heard it was a flower from Earth, uh, and she's pretty like a flower. The man smiled as he typed in his compad. After a few moments, he tucked it in his pocket and said, I hope you and Petunia will be very happy. We do not let our dogs go easily. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1288. Story number two. Soul 3, written by Fat Chance 30. Unknown to the rest of the galaxy, Korgakal had mobilized. More than 200 cycles had passed since their last missed opportunity. At this time, they were ready. The signal had been received from a distant Korgrak cruiser. A young sentient species so far uncontacted by any council member had been found. Their technology was impressive for a developing race, but nothing that didn't already exist on the home on Jack. This species was promising. Initial estimates put their population at some two billion, two billion laborers and soldiers. It was enough to make any educated Korgrak giddy with the possibilities. With victory assured, the Korgrak high priest announced that the news that they would soon have a vassal of their own, an entire race that would be devoted to Korgakal, offering up their own wealth and laborers to advance their masters. The high priest was quick to make the announcement, keenly aware of the political ramifications of being the one to finally give his people what they had dreamed of. A slave species that would catapult their own civilization to a new age of luxury. The fleets were launched from all across Jack. This was a historic day, and show of force was the utmost importance for future relationships between masters and slaves. Six top-of-the-line carriers with a full complement of fighters assembled alongside three truly massive destroyers and a host of support vessels. Maneuvers were perfect, and not a single crease could be found in the uniform of any crew member aboard any ship. The fleet aligned to give the press drones a perfect angle for images that would soon be seen all across the planet. This was a great fanfare as the high priest boarded his personal cruiser and joined the fleet in orbit. One ceremonial trip around Jack later, and the fleet jumped to the position marked by the Discovery cruiser. The fleet of Korgakal sat by the fourth planet in the system. Information was discovered and cracked from increasingly complex transmission encryption systems and relayed back to Jack. The star was simply known as Sol by the planet's inhabitants. That would make the fleet's position Sol 4 and their target planet Sol 3. 
the target's defenses were not a problem. Although there was more orbital traffic than would normally be expected from a population this size. Still, no matter. Every species has its quirks. What mattered to the present military craft were that of peacekeepers and showed the same lack of firepower expected from an uncontacted species. Their translation capability was finalized and a message both greeting and domination was broadcast. The fleet blasted into orbit of Sol 3 with much more speed than was necessary. As expected, there was chaos. Ships in orbit frantically changed course to duck, some halting together, transfixed by the appearance of the alien fleet. The high priest gave them more than enough time to come up with a reply and a method of communication as he studied the red planet below. He was beginning to grow impatient when the reply came. It came in from a short-range broadcast from a craft that suddenly decloaked just in range of the fleet. That was unexpected. There were rumors of council races with the technology to cloak a small amount of matter from light and its other effects of the universe around it. These rumors, of course, had no basis of reality. The message was just as unexpected. It was rather friendly. Humanity, as they called themselves, had simply ignored the domination part and just begun gushing at finally meeting a fellow space-sparing species. To compare themselves with the mighty Kograx was a slight that would not be tolerated by the high priest on this day that would surely go down in history. The order was given to fire on half of the civilian vessels in range of the fleet, and in mere seconds, Forty small ships would turn to debris, including the craft that brought the insolent message. Happy that both their firepower and intentions were now clearly stated, the high priest ordered a repeat of the communication outlining the terms of their servitude. Moments passed before sensor pings alerted the fleet to a change in the battlefield and incoming fire. Two carriers were destroyed in a blinding flash, and they appeared to be broken in half by an impact that incapacitated their immense shielding before their calls quickly detonated. The reports came in quickly, all hands lost. The high priest was in shock. Impossible, he mumbled, as the fleet looked for this new threat that had struck such a blow. It was then that they realized the navigation consoles had changed and now placed them at Sol 4. But they were sure that this planet was the third from the star. The console reared out was clear. They had in fact arrived at the fourth planet from Sol. One destroyer was crippled by an ungodly barrage of laser fire as another vanished in a ball of light that seemed to come from the star itself. No, not the star. They came from Sol 3. From the actual Sol 3 that moments ago had simply not been there. Where they were first nothing was now a planet that looked busier and more developed than any of the Council worlds. There were space forts and cities larger than any Korgrak could dream of. They had cloaked a planet. They had cloaked a planet. Impossible, cried the High Priest in denial as the rest of the Korgrak ships were wiped away by the defensive installation on humanity's home world. End of story. Story number one. An honest mistake. Written by Redshift Razor. Jeremy, I was not aware you humans were so magnanimous. Uh, what exactly do you mean about that, Blue? It's not like I haven't been generous to you in the past. 
Oh, come on now, Jeremy. We both know that you're on the stingier half of the generosity spectrum. Until recently, I believed all humans were like you. But now I know better. That's the result of limited interactions with humans, I suppose. It seems that you're an outlier when it comes to bounty that humans provide for others. You better not have done something foolish, dude. What in the world happened? We both know that I'm the brains of our duo, so I should be asking you the same thing on a daily basis. Come on, dude, just answer the question, fine. As you know, I recently stumbled across quite a windfall, and I was looking for something to do with it. It seems that the universe heard my prayers, because I was approached by a human who was dealing with a pretty bad situation. Blue, um, you didn't get scammed out of your money, did you? Of course not. Now let me finish. Anyhow, I was approached by a lovely man who went by the name of Adenergy Adela the 50th. Unlike you, he was a dapper in his appearance, and so I was compelled to listen to the tale he had to tell, and it was quite a tale he told. Man, I dress well. You can't just appreciate my fashion sense. If you say so. Anyways, he said that he was a prince of planet New Nigeria, deep in human sector. When I asked him what he was doing all the way out here, he said that he was in an aid mission, helping developing planets in the galactic realm, when he was suddenly attacked by pirates. Can you believe it? He went on an aid mission out of the kindness of his heart, and this is what befell him. Jeremy put a hand on his head and almost collapsed. Instead of opting to slide down the wall, he was groaning the whole time he did so. Blue, don't tell me you gave him money. See, that's why I called you stingy earlier. The idea of helping someone in need is painful for you. And regardless, it's not like I didn't get anything out of it. Let me guess, sir. He offered you an exorbitant number of credits a later date if you helped him out then and there, right? You know, you're sharper than you look, Jeremy. He said that he needed a ship and five million credits to get back home. And once he did, he would wire me a hundred times the amount in two weeks' time. I'll have five hundred million credits. A singular tear rolled down Jeremy's face, who had turned to leave the room. Jeremy, where are you headed? I'm going to go cry in my room. Don't you dare interrupt me. Blue watched Jeremy leave, slightly confused by the outburst before the answer dawned on him. My goodness, he must have been so moved by my act of generosity that he was driven to tears. He's a better person at heart than I thought. When I get my money, I'll be sure to give him some. Now I just need to wait. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1289. Story number one. Run like hell. Written by Echoing Gascade. Persistence hunters is one of the first things you hear whenever anyone speaks of humans. To make a long story short, it means that you don't try and run away from a human. The only thing that achieves is getting you tired. But I know better. Salaz was running, stolen goods in hand. Simply trying to outrun a human is foolish, and I am no fool. He jumped over a suspicious-looking patch of leaves and looked back at the human soldier running after him. The human, without breaking stride, made the same jump, but the carefully hidden and reinforced second vault trap gave way under the mass of weight. Gotcha! Now all I need is a few minutes to give the prize the time it deserves. His joy was short-lived as he watched the now-quite-angry human climb over the side of the trap, covered in mud. No matter, I still have plenty of traps. 
Salaz was flat at his back, exhausted. He could hear a rhythmic splotch clank coming closer. Ah, oh, frack. The human soldier slowly walked towards the small, bipedal lizard. She was still covered in mud, but now had the remains of a snare on her right wrist, twigs and leaves in her hair, and a metal bucket glued to her foot. No, not her boot, her foot. She put her foot bucket on the chest and pried the chocolate bar from his claws. Then, while glaring at him, unwrapped the candy and ate it in his face. Marine, mine! She then drew her side arm, took aim at his face, and pulled the trigger. Celian looked up at his breakfast at the scene in front of him. His colleague and close friend, sane as far as he knew, held firmly in place under the boot of one of the marines in charge of security, as she emptied her water pistol in his face, punctuating every shot with Bad Zeno! Bad Zeno! He shook his head. Don't steal food from humans, ask nicely, and more often than not, they'll gladly share. It's one of the first things you hear whenever anyone speaks of humans. Salaz saw Celian looking and gave him a silent plea for help. Celian lifted his data pad and covered his face. Now, of course, there was always a fool or two who thinks they know better. End of story. Story number two. Struggle, written by Algy Father Anthracite. Alice was scared. The people in the hospital were nice, and everyone kept telling her that it was going to be okay. That freaked her out more than anything. She saw people whispering to each other around her. Nurses to doctors, doctors to other doctors. Everyone whispered to her parents. Anyone who talked to her was always loud and cheerful. She knew something was wrong. After having the accident, her legs had stopped working. After the surgery, they were still just laying there, useless. Alice wondered if they would ever work again. The new chair was much better than the old one. It was lighter and slightly narrower. It had large wheels in the front and small cast wheels at the back. There was a small motor if she ever got tired of pushing by hand. It was a basic black model but Alice knew that she could get her dad to take her to the hardware store, and they would pick out some cool colors and tape, and she could make it look awesome. By the time freshman year started, it would be tricked out, and her friends would help her decorate it even more. Alice was working in one of the labs. Her face stuck to an eyepiece of a microscope. She was counting dyed nerve cells on a prepped slide. One of the many tasks a student in genetics was required to do during the lab portion of their classes. She noted a very high count and made a note on the slide number and then moved on to the next slide. Alice was working in an office of a teacher, running through the next version of the gene protocol that they were working on. After finding an anomalously high nerve count several years ago, they had started narrowing down the calls and found something that looked like it might be a promising new technique to jumpstart nerve cell growth. Alice continued to pursue her education, and if the results were viable, this might just help her get into a master's program that she wanted. Alice sat in her chair, looking around the new lab. Her new lab. A grant based on her PhD thesis had paid for all of this, and now she was going to be able to finally prove that neurogenerative inhibitors were a controlled response in human cells that could be toggled on and off with the proper protein sequence. Alice sat looking at the results of the latest test batch. 
while her assistant looked on nervously over her shoulder. The isolated protein structure was deformed during the folding process exactly the way she predicted. They found the key. She looked at her assistant. Ran it again. I need to be sure. The human patient lay face down on the table. Overhead, a gantry with a motion control unit was set up with a syringe and with an IV bag containing custom folded proteins. The man on the table was a volunteer. On the other side of the glass sat Alice. She got a nod from the tech and was pressed the button on the microphone. In the patient room, her voice came out of the speaker grill. We are going to start now, Ted. Let us know if you need us to stop for any reason. The gantry lowered into place over his spine. Ted looked into the doctor's eyes, his own slick with tears. He knelt in front of her chair and wrapped his arms around her waist. He cried into her lap for a few minutes, saying, Thank you! Thank you so much! Over and over again, she whispered that she was happy to help. Alice goes home, rolling up a ramp her father built for her. After all these years, he still kept it in great shape. She knocked on the door. A voice calls out from inside, Who is it? It's me, Alfie. Open up. The door opens, and a young man, just a few years younger than Alice, opens the door. He stands in the doorway, his gaze above her head. What are you doing here? Is it meatloaf night? He moves his cane from one hand to the other and opens the screen door. Come on in, sis. Got good news. I passed my bar exam. I'm a lawyer now. I knew you could do it. She'd stopped halfway through the door and hugged her little brother. He patted her head once or twice, then slid his hand down to her shoulder. He squeezed her closer as she hugged him. Have good news too, Alice said. It's not meatloaf night, Alfie asked. No, we still got to eat meatloaf. Sorry. She rolled all the way into the house, and Alfie closed the door. So, what's the good news? It worked. It worked, Alfie. We can fix it. Alice sits in a chair in a hall in Sweden. Alfie sits beside her. The presenter calls her name. Alfie stands and pushes his sister through the hall, up the ramp to the stage. She is presented with a medal and pointed to a low mic stand just next to the podium. Alfie nods and rolls her over to it. She waits for the light applause to die down, and then starts a speech. When I was eight, my family was in a car wreck. It was pretty bad. I haven't walked a day since. In the 35 years that followed, I pursued one singular goal, to find a way to regenerate nerve tissue damage. I was stuck in that chair that day. All in all, not that bad. I could still get around on my own. And I could do most of the stuff kids normally do. But my brother lost his sight. He lost his ability to run free and roam around. I spent the rest of my life trying to bring his vision back. With the help of countless others, I finally did it. My brother can see again, and it made 35 years of struggle worth it. Jenny is sitting in a bed. She can feel the hands around her head removing the bandages. She held her breath as the last few layers were lifted off. It's okay, Jenny. You can open your eyes, said the doc. Jenny liked the doc. She was nice. She had wheels for legs and gave Jenny a ride through the hospital sometimes. Jenny let out a slow exhale and opened her eyes. She blinked a few times. Everything was so bright. It's okay, Jenny. Can you see me? 
Jenny moved her eyes and saw something in front of her. Dark! She placed her hands on the woman's face and looked for the first time into the face of the woman who gave her sight. She had bushy, kinky hair with streaks running through it. Her skin was darker than Jenny's. Her skin was looser and softer than Jenny's skin because she was older. The dark was smiling. Jenny could tell because her hands told her so. Her eyes didn't make sense yet. She closed her eyes, trying to focus. It's okay, Jenny. You don't have to push yourself. It'll take some time. But everything is okay now, said Alice. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.